Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve. So uh, we're going to do Q&A now. But before we do Q&A and before we talk about what's keeping us from making spiritual progress, before we share about our difficulties and also our successes, I wanted to introduce you to my dear friend Parama. She's my guru Bhagini, which is my sister, my sister disciple, I guess. We share the mm-hmm. same guru. And uh, Parama recently has put out an incredible, sweeping rock opera of the Bhagavad Gita. It's like 19 songs, 18 of those songs. Each one is the essence, texture, and teaching of each of the chapters of the Bhagavad Gita. So 18 chapters, 18 songs. And there's some like really top tier Indian artist on the record. So when she introduced it to me, it's my two favorite things, rock and roll. Uh, they're not two things. They're one thing. We're non-dualist. Okay. But, but rock and roll and, and, and God, right? Like, so I wanted to introduce you to her just to like kind of share her work with you. And I was thinking maybe, um, Padma, you'd like to tell them a little bit about your project and how they can listen to the songs, etc. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nish. And I enjoyed your class. Wow. That was awesome. You're, you're so cool. I love it. Okay. So, you know, I was introduced to the Vedanta Society in 2015, but I've been learning about uh, Vedanta pretty much for 30 years or something. Um, and I always kept hearing the Bhagavad Gita, read the Bhagavad Gita, and I'd pick it up and put it down. I didn't understand it. I'd say it's about a war, but it's supposed to be spiritual, and I didn't get it. But when I was at the Vedanta Society, Swami Sarvadevananda had a class on the Bhagavad Gita, and we got to take that deep dive. And really, I mean, like a whole hour class would be on one verse of the Gita. So it took us years to go through the whole thing. And he kept telling us, you need to memorize these verses because these are very important and you need to have them handy in your memory for when something comes up. And so I try to memorize the verses, but okay, I don't speak Sanskrit. And uh, in Sanskrit, it's got this little sing-song rhyme to it, you know, da 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 da, and it's easier to memorize. But I don't speak Sanskrit. And when you translate those same verses into English, then it doesn't rhyme anymore, and it doesn't have that. Uh, emotion tied to it that you get with a song. So one day um, I thought, you know what? I have a background as a songwriter. I'm going to try to just take some verses and make them into English rhyming verse. And I did that. And then I was able to memorize it. So it was now it was a poem again with rhythm and rhyme. And after I did a couple chapters, I went to Sarvadevananda and I said, this is what I've been doing. Is this okay? Like, who am I to rewrite the Bhagavad Gita? Krishna, these are Krishna's words, not mine. I'm just rearranging them so that they rhyme and I can memorize them. Sarvadevananda was so encouraging, so supportive. And he's like, yes, this is great. This is exactly what we need. So I kept going and kept going and kept going. And I wrote a chapter at a time. And every time I was writing the chapter, I kept hearing music in my head. I said, we got to write songs. That's the next thing. So first thing is the book and then the songs. So we came out with the book in 2017. 
Then I went to my friend who's a music producer. He's worked with a lot of big artists. And I said, this is what I want to do. Can you help me? Can you help me do this? And he looked at me like, are you crazy? Like, this is a huge project. How are we going to do this? I said, I don't know, but let's just try. Let's just do one at a time. Let's just go for it and see what happens. And we did one song and we were hooked. And it was just so much fun. And so it's not that it was easy, but it was effortless. It was like everything would fall into place. And, you know, it it was a big project because the Gita is 700 verses. My book, I abridged to be 400 verses. Well, in a song, if you have you know, 40 verses in a song, it's going to be a 20 minute song. You can't, you can't have that. That's not right. So we had to condense it again and really bring out the essence of each chapter. Like what is the, the core message of this chapter? Because you'll notice in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna repeats himself a lot. So, you know, you don't necessarily need the same message in every single song. So we tried to find the core messages So what we ended up with was Song Divine, the Bhagavad Gita rock opera. And that's me. And that's Vito, my producer. And I have an illustrator, um, Rajesh Nagulakanda, and he does a lot of graphic novels and stuff. And he's in India and he illustrated the book. So we used some of his pictures in there. That's one of our vocalists, um, Alexander Perez. He sang the Arjuna role. And this is um, Deepak Ramaprayan. And he sang the uh, Krishna role. It was really important for me to find um, an Indian American singer who could sing in English and um, be true to the essence of the Sanskrit. So that worked out great. That's Vito there. And we got, we're so new, Sonu Nigam, who is like one of the biggest artists in India. He's a huge pop star and he like judges Indian Idol and all those shows and stuff. I got him to sing one of the songs. He sang the chapter two song. And I actually went to India and recorded with him. I went to um, Brindaban. I went to... Vrindavan is how you say it, right? I always say it wrong, but Vrindavan. I went to Vrindavan. I stayed at the Ramakrishna temple there. I went to Bellarmat, stayed at the Ramakrishna temple there, had the most wonderful experiences, got the blessings of the swamis and everything. And so this just came out in October, which means it's going to be open for the 2023 Grammys. Now we didn't do it to make money. We didn't do it to get a Grammy. We did it to reach people. So if we can get a Grammy, we can reach a lot more people because we'll get, we'll let people know about it. Like how do people know about it? It's one of millions of CDs on Amazon. It's on Spotify with millions and millions and millions of songs. So I'm so grateful for Nish for allowing me to share this with you and tell you about it so that you can get it on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, YouTube. I have, you know, YouTube is free. You can watch the lyric videos so you can see the lyrics right when you're watching the song and hearing it. It's on, I mean, you name it. It's on every, every streaming service. So I hope you enjoy it. 
I hope you share it with your friends. I hope you get something out of it, like a new, deeper way of understanding the Gita. If you're new to the Gita, it's going to be like mind blowing. And if you know the Gita, you're, I think you're going to have a deep appreciation for um, this kind of a format because this is completely new. Nobody's ever made a rock opera out of the Bhagavad Gita before. But, you know, if they can make a rock opera out of Hamilton or Phantom of the Opera, why can't we make a rock opera out of the Bhagavad Gita? So we have plans to make a stage show and do it on stage. We have plans to make a movie and, um, you know, plans to make a documentary and everything. But it's one step at a time. We got the we got the book. We got the lyric book. We got the CD, the streaming So I'm just keeping making progress little by little by little. This is my dharma. It took me a long time to find my dharma, but this is it. (laughs) Here I am doing it. You're never too old. And um, yeah, that's about it. So thank you very much for listening to me. You know, Padma, I'm so excited because, um, you know, this space, I, I really felt like more than anything, I wanted this space to be a place that people could come and discover their dharma in and then live it. And so I'm excited for you to come and talk to everyone because it's so nice to connect with someone and look at someone who is doing that. Look at the radiance on Parama's face, like beauty <laughs> joy. Because most importantly, life lives itself. Parama is not making the song divine. God is. You know? And when there's that touch of the divine, it's like you feel the flow state. Things just do itself and everybody comes to your aid. Like when something is to be made and the world wants it as part of the world process, no force on earth can stop you. You know, and the interesting thing is all true devotees, once they catch a whiff of that, they're at your service. You know, and and so like the way we come together, it's like you hear something like this, you're like, I'm at your service. Let's let's do it. Let's get this stuff out there. You know, it's Shiva's play. So it's exciting. I'm so excited to like, you know, share your stuff. Yeah, I just, I really felt that you're absolutely right. That God was with me the whole time. You know, Ma, I've got Sarada Devi is my Ista and I love her so much. And uh, when I was looking for a singer in India, I don't know any singers in India. And I would ask my friends in India, who's the best singer that you can think of? And across the board, everybody said Sonu Nagam, Sonu Nagam, Sonu Nagam. And I'm like, who is Sonu Nagam? I didn't even know. How am I going to get a guy that I don't even know, never heard about? But by asking like all these people, random people, somebody says, oh, I know somebody who knows him and I know somebody who knows him. And next thing you know, I'm on the phone with Sonu Nagam. He's doing a concert in San Jose. He says, fly up to San Jose so we can meet. I was there the next day and he said yes on the spot. Mm -hmm. No, there's no way that he could not. That's the thing, you know, it's like we keep telling young people, especially don't think about money. Don't worry about what you will do. Don't worry about what this life is for. Let life live you. Let the impulse arise, follow it. And spiritual practice gives you that. I'm sure Parama from reciting your mantra, doing japa, you had courage, that abhaya, that like, I have nothing to gain. I have nothing to lose. I'm a karma yogi. And that gives you the courage to get on the phone with someone that many people might be intimidated to talk to. And suddenly they just say yes. You know? Yeah. And he even told me, he said, you know why I'm saying yes? Because this is your dharma. And I know only good is going to come from this. 
And I was like, oh, he gets it. He understands, you know? So it just, it just worked out. We had, it took a few months to say, is he coming here? Am I going there? And then my goddaughter was getting married. And I said, I'm going there because I'm going to her wedding. I'll stop by and see you. And he goes, oh, okay, here's the dates I'm available. I said, that's perfect. And it just Mm. works. Taco would say, (laughs) not even a tree moves upon the branch that does not move by the will of God. You know, so it's like a lot of us are thinking about what's possible or what's impossible. Nothing is impossible for God. If he wants Sonu Nigam on the thing, the fellow will bring Sonu Nigam to San Jose, put him on a phone and put him on your album. Like that's the thing. Everything happens, you know. So I'm happy that you're here today for today's lecture. I thought it would be really nice because, you know, when we were talking about worldliness, the very last part of our lecture about how we think there are so many important things in the world. Like I have to sort that out first before I do spirituality. It's such, a, such an irony, right? Because everything that you want in life comes as a consequence of spirituality. You discover your dharma, you're fearless enough to pursue it, and then the whole world takes care of you for doing it. You get the money that you need, not that you needed it. Um, you get the recognition that you want, not that you wanted it. Life becomes effortless. So especially to young people, we're always saying, just think about God. And it says in the Bible, these things will be added unto you too, not that you care, because you have what's worth, you know, like, like I would say, like Lisa, right now, Grammy or no, you've, you've got the ultimate joy of this. You've already gotten the fruit, which is the right. joy of being That's here right. together right now. You know, That's so right. who cares, Grammy or no, but it will happen. Like all of it will just happen. And we're just happy, you know? Yes. <sighs> yeah. The whole time I was happy writing it. I, I was telling, I've written 15 books, you know, which is a lot of books um, over the years. And it, it's always been a fun process to go through and structure and everything. But with, with when I was writing song divine, it was just pure bliss. I mean, I, I couldn't stop. And it was just, I felt uh, in the flow and I felt totally present and Mm. it was just, it was just perfect. I I was, I kept telling um, my friend that there's so much stuff I have to do, but this is what I want to do. This is what I'm drawn towards. Everything else can wait. I'm just doing this right now. Right. Oh, what a beautiful line. Everything else can wait. I'm doing this right now because this is what I'm drawn to. Oh, Lisa, how beautiful. I wish more people could allow themselves to be drawn by the things that draw them. You know, it's like the Sufi proverb, who you're looking for is already looking for you. Or if you take one step towards God, God will take 10 steps towards you. So some people here say, oh, we have to be practical. Right. And our message has always been throw practicality to the wind. Go for it. You have one life. You've spent so many of these lives doing things like lust and greed. Give it all up for God. Just try. See what happens. In other words, like whatever God is to you, just meditate and do it. You know, like just do your puja. Just spend your whole day with your focus on spirituality. And this happens, which, you know, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. For sure. yeah. And sometimes just, you know, you were talking about the mind being so active and you can't focus on meditating. When I get that way, like earlier today, I was that way. I'll say, okay, Ma, I'm, my mind is all over the place. Let me just have a conversation with you. And so I'll just like, imagine she's right there with me. I'll just be like, I just adore you and I want to be more like you. So let me think of your qualities, you know, and that in that way, I get more in the mood to meditate and it quiets my mind and then I can be still. Right, right. And you find that like when you when you're in that flow state and, you know, the guy who wrote that book, I can't pronounce his name. I don't want to butcher it. But that book called Flow, 
you read that book? Um, I haven't read that book now. Yeah, he he talks about states like he calls them flow states when the difficulty level and the interest level are so aligned that you're having fun. This idea like video games can't be too hard, but they can't be too easy. Something like that. And and life is Shiva Lila. It's the game of Shiva. And the idea is that it has to be the right level. uh, And he even talks about Raja Yoga. No, like mm. some things are not meditation, but they're meditative. So I wonder if Lisa, as a result of going to the studio and doing this work, you find that it's improved your meditations as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I had like insights and stuff because of the work too. And now when I, it's true, I have it, I have at least my version of the Gita memorized. So, you know, when something comes up, that quote will come to me to comfort me and and I mean, so I benefited from it personally. The Gita is the Gita is a handbook for life. If there's only one book you could ever read, I think Vivekananda said that too. If there's only one book you can ever read in your life, let it be the Gita. Yeah, man. You know, I'm a sucker for Dharma. Like anybody who's ever doing something that has the touch of Dharma, it's like we just it it we have to work together. You know, that's just the feeling. We're all in it together. But yeah. another thing that's very exciting about your project, because even if someone just wanted to write books about finance, but it was their dharma, like I'm at their service. I want to do everything yes. for them because, you know, it's dharma. Um, but another thing that I like about this project is how you said, when, when I was growing up, I had to memorize my texts, but I could because they were all songs. You know, when mm-hmm. I was very young, my grandfather, he stressed. I would ask him, Tata, what does this mean? And he said, hey, you don't ask about meaning now. You just memorize. So every day I would sit in front of the altar with my grandfather and we would sing long songs in Tamil, you know. And at that stage of my training, I was just downloading. I didn't understand the text. I was just downloading them and I didn't understand that I would need them for later. But they got downloaded, you know, and they became a part of me. And the Gita, you know, it's like it's like a part of us. And, you yeah. know, in the Sanskrit... Prakritaiva cha karmani kriyanani sarvashaha. Prakriti alone does all the things. He sees who sees that they are not the doer. It's so beautiful. It's lyrical yes. and musical. So that what you're doing is giving a, a, an American English speaking audience a chance to also have that experience is very important, I think. Yeah. Like think about when you get this song stuck in your head, you know, from the radio and this is kind of what made me get into songwriting in the first place. I had little kids and I couldn't stand the children's music. And I, and when I turned on the pop station, it was Madonna singing like a virgin. What's a virgin? And I'm like, (laughs) I don't think you need to know this yet. You know? So I started writing kids songs that were affirmations and they memorize it. You know, the first words we ever memorize are words to a song. So, you know, when we, when we have the music along with the words, it just helps to stay with us. Yeah. Oh, and you know, when you think about Shaivism, the stuff that we're studying here in the Sangha, the idea that all of this is Shiva's Lila. Another way to say this is all of this is Shiva's Spanda, his vibration. And like music, it's a vibration, you know? And, and so it's so exciting that you're doing this work. And so I thought it'd be nice for you to come and share it with everyone. Thank here today. you. Yeah, I Om Namah Shivaya was the first uh, mantra that I ever learned. And when I was pregnant with my kids, I used to sing it to my kids all the time in utero, you know, and it calmed them. It calmed them. And to this day, I can I can just remind them Om Namah Shivaya and they get it, you know. Wow, how lucky these kids are. 
Om Namah Shivaya. Beautiful, Lisa. Thank you, Parma. Thank you, Parma. Thank you so much. Thank oh, you, Nish. You are amazing. It. <laughs> yes. All glory to the mother. And I see some hands here. Seems like some people in our audience want to say hello. Uh, please, everyone, I'd love to meet you, especially those of you who are newer, who I haven't yet had the fortune of seeing. Um, I, I love seeing your faces. It's the, the best thing in the whole world, you know, just to see you. And it's just so nice. It, it's a whole different level of communication because these are these teachings. They happen best through eye contact. You know, spirituality, they say, is not taught. It's caught, you know, so I love seeing you and I would love to hear from you, too. So those of you who are new, please like say hello. Let's start over here with um, Alexander. You know, I've not met Alexander yet. So I wanted to, you know, say hello. Hi. Feel free to unmute Alexander. Namaskaram. Namaskar, yes. dear Alexander G. <laughs> um, I just have a few questions here. Right. Maybe you might have answered them already in a certain way, but I just need them up to be a little bit more clear to me um what what is it that keeps us from doing what we know that we should do like the practices and stuff and how do we overcome that simply put maya you know so maya, maya <laughs> from doing yes. what we know we should do so what what should we do First and foremost are spiritual duties, meaning we should be meditating, we should be reciting the mantra, we should be uh, doing worship, we should be doing contemplations. That's what we should be doing. From doing that comes the Dharma, which is our purpose in the world. Like for Arjuna, in the Bhagavad Gita, his purpose was to fight this war. I mean, he is a warrior of the warrior caste or the ruling caste, and his job at that time was to fight the war. He knows what he needs to do. He's just not willing to do it. Something's keeping him from doing what he knows he should do. And it expresses itself as a spiritual bypassing. You know, he has all these like clever arguments to not do it. You see, when we say you should practice spirituality and you go, oh my God, yeah, I should, you get it. Notice the moment you set that intention to practice spirituality, the mind concocts all sorts of like excuses not to. But I'm feeling kind of tired. It would be better if I slept and then I'll be fresher in the morning. I'll do it then. Or really, is it really nice to wake up early in the morning? I spend most of that time dozing off anyway. I won't meditate in the morning. Or uh, I just had lunch. I don't, you know, like that stuff. In short, Maya. All of that is Maya. It's the game. Um, and you might ask, well, why Maya? Why is there this faculty inherent to nature that keeps us from doing our dharma, that keeps us from doing our spiritual practice? What's with that? And the answer is for fun. The video game would not be fun if there wasn't some level of resistance, some level of challenge. So we say Maya is not error. Maya, yeah, that's the thing, Teresa. Maya is very, very good at doing what she does. Why? Um, because she's been at it a little longer than I have. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I'm over lust. And then Maya's like, really? Yes, I'm over greed. And she's like, really? Yes, I can practice every day. Really? So Maya's always kind of playing with us, you know. But think about it this way. It's not that. It's the devil. You know, there's no devil in Indian spirituality. What's keeping us from spirituality and what's keeping us from dharma is a game that you agreed to play. So Shiva, good night, dear Amanda Ji. Good night. So Shiva which is what you are, pure awareness, emanates this world. It pours forth this reality using Shakti and creates a video game out of it, which keeps him from realizing himself. So then he enters into this world as an Alexander and as a Nish. And part of the game is to 
blow through resistance, to be tricked, to be drawn back. So in short, the short answer is Maya. And the reason for Maya is for fun. You know, that's what keeps us from doing what we know we should be doing. That's the big answer. The smaller, more direct answer is fear. What keeps us from doing what we know we should be doing is that we're afraid. We don't meditate for one hour because, frankly speaking, it's kind of scary to sit there and be with yourself for one hour with no, you know, like, things to get distracted with. That's scary. It's scary to face yourself. Secondly, if I sit there for an hour, that's one more hour in which I'm not building my investment portfolio. And that's scary, right? The fear of not having enough money, the fear of maybe not being loved or not doing the things that I've tricked myself into believing I need to do to feel like I belong. So when you really look at it, deep down inside, what keeps us from doing what we know we should do is fear. And if you look even deeper, what's causing that fear? Error. The error of assuming that you are this body and this mind. As long as you think you are the body, you will fear death. The body dies. As long as you think you are the mind, you will fear blame and like, you know, all of that because that's part of the, the mind. Spiritual practices then, when you do them, they're all designed to rid you of this basic error that you are an Alexander. You know, so think of it this way. Alexander will never be free of the world, but you can be free of Alexander. That's what spirituality will show you. It will show you that you are not an Alexander body-mind complex. You are the only thing that you've ever been, ever will be, and even now are, whether you know it or not. And then the body and mind will just do what it needs to do without any effort on your part. So Maya, fear, intellectual error. And that error is assuming you are this body and mind. That's the, the range of answers for why we don't do what we know we should do. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Was that helpful at all, Alexander? Do you think you got what you needed? Uh, very much, yes. So I will um, contemplate on this, definitely. Yes. Is there something, maybe you could, in private, you could tell me, but if you feel like comfortable sharing, is there something in speci like specifically that you, you want to do, but you don't feel like you can do? Um, it's just, um, I feel this distance between, you know, like, I think you're like kind of answered it it's it is maya but um i'm having this difficulty overcoming the maya and working towards the things that i, I know i should do and um things like this you know what i mean yeah um, brother we all feel that huh time to time so i'm wondering how to cut through that yes right yes and and the way to do it is okay let's say um let's say you want to okay just for an example, let's say I want to wake up tomorrow at 5.30 in the morning and meditate. You know, let's say I want to do that. Now, if I give myself room to talk myself out of it, I will. That's the thing. Like if you want to do something, like say you want to meditate three times a day, if you give yourself any room for not doing it, you won't do it. So a few things to do is to set firm times. Like say you, you, you really want to meditate three, three times a day, you have to set times for it or it won't happen. You have to say, okay, this time, this time, and this time. Whether I feel like it or not, I'm going to do it. Then when it comes that time, then the discipline, then there's like some discipline required. And by that is, we mean you have to train. So like, let's say I want to wake up at 5.30 tomorrow. I set a time. I have an intention to do it. And my resolve is strong. I'm going to do it. When the alarm rings and I open my eyes, I might want to do it, but my body won't. My body will be like, you said you wanted to meditate. I didn't agree to it. Swami Sabra put on the joke that way. So then at that point, at that point, I have to be like, okay, but I said I was going to do it. Now I'm going to do it. So I do it. Another way is to hold yourself accountable. We have like a check-in thread. 
you know, and I use the check-in thread to kind of mimic the feeling of being in a monastery where it's not just you, it's you and your sangha. If you're not there at meditation at 5.30, 5.45, really, then other people are like, where'd he go? And that kind of social pressure kind of keeps you on the mat. So social pressure helps. It's a good peer pressure, I guess you could say. You're inspired by everyone else. And um, kind of saying to yourself, I will do it, so I will do it. Now, you have to be gentle. If you don't do it, don't abandon it. But at the same time, don't drag down the ideal either. Say, I will meditate three times a day. I haven't yet. And that's okay. I forgive myself. It's gradual. It's a process. So going back to my example, I say I'm going to wake up tomorrow at 5.30 in the morning. The alarm goes off. I open my eyes and I say, F it. I'm going back to bed. Cool. The next day, I set my alarm for 5.30 again. And I say, I'm going to meditate at 5.30 in the morning. I open my eyes. I don't go right back to sleep. I sit there for 10 minutes fighting with myself. And then I go back to sleep. Fine, good. I made progress. The next day, I set my alarm for 5.30 a.m. in the morning. This time, I actually get off my ass. I get out of the bed. I walk all of the way into the room. I see that it's dark. I feel that it's cold. I go back to bed and sleep. Okay, fine. At least I get, you see what I'm saying? Like every day you come back to it and every day you'll make some progress. And one day will come that will remove all of that progress. You'll go back to square one. And then you can smile and say, swiper, no swiping. Maya, you did it again. And keep going. You know, so training. The mind responds to this conversation. The body responds to training. Everyday train. Another thing I can tell you is routine is your best friend in spiritual life. Don't sleep on this, folks. If you don't have a routine, if you don't have set times when you do your meditation, you won't do it. Or you'll do it for a season when you're inspired and then all the spirituality stuff will just be something you did one summer somewhere. <laughs> so routine, make sure you have times. Do you think that's helpful, Alexander? Thank you. Very much so. Very much so. Thank Wonderful. you. Wonderful, G. Thank you. Uh, many of you are artists, you know. You should um, actually set times for making art. Say you want to produce an album. You say, okay, 3 to 5 p.m. I'm just going to work on my art. Whether I feel like it or not, I'm not going to wait for inspiration. I'm just going to sit there and record a few songs, you know, produce, write some lyrics, something. But it's your time, you know. So, yes. Wonderful. Good night, dear Norma. Thank you, Alexander. Beautiful. Beautiful. Good luck. We'll, we'll check in with each other. You know, we'll see. Tomorrow I'm up at 5.30. I'll tell you if it happens. <laughs> it's been, it goes well. And then some days, like, just like, just lose all that progress, you know? And someone is asking in the chat here, like, so um, I'm just having fun with myself. So if I give in and meditate, who will I play with? Don't worry, Teresa, there are more games. You'll get bored of this game. And then when you start meditating, don't worry, there will never be an end to your game, Teresa. You will never get to a point where you'll have nobody to play with. <laughs> You'll start playing with angels, gods and goddesses. Ultimately, it's all just you playing with yourself. So someone else asks, my fun or Maya's fun? Same. You and Maya are same. Shiva is not different from his Shakti. Is heat different from a fire? Similarly, Shakti is Shiva. It's his property. It's his potency. So um, you are Maya and this is your game because you are Shiva. Can you imagine how boring it would be? to not have the struggle. Swami Brahmananda would say, you know, our parampara guru for Lisa and me, he would say, and, and Amal actually, a lot of guru bhais and guru bhaginis here today. But um, Swami Brahmananda would, would, people would ask him, can you remove lust? Because in his case, what had happened was, um, he was struggling with lust. He went to his guru, Paramahansa Ramakrishna, who just so happened to be the avatar of the modern age. So Brahmananda lucked out on that one. <laughs> He's a Ishvara Koti. So it's, it's, but anyway, Brahmananda's there. He, even he's struggling with lust. He was a married man, you know, and he, you know, so he goes to Ramakrishna and he expresses that he's been struggling with, with lust. And Ramakrishna, 
with a shakti path kind of shakti teaching taps him on the forehead or 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 does something and he never has a lustful thought again he starts to regard everyone like a 9 year old boy with regard with regard it's like how nice the grace it's called guru kripa you know in the guru gita it says moksha moolam guru kripa the root of liberation is the guru's grace we chanted it in today's puja so um that was what happened to brahmananda now his disciples would ask him for the same <laughs> having heard the story his disciples would say can you do that to me what ramakrishna did to you can you do to me and he would smile and said yes you know he would say yes i could but where would be the fun in that and he said you need to struggle a bit you know like that's that's what makes spiritual life worthwhile the struggle it's an adventure can you imagine if like frodo and sam left for mordor and they took an uber there <laughs> <laughs> that movie would suck. Like the plot of that movie would be, sir, can you turn the air conditioning down a bit? That's it. That would be the only conflict. It was too cold in the back seat of the Uber or they didn't like the mentos that they were handed. Like come on. Lord of the Rings is awesome because there was so much danger along the way, you know, and the the Gita is wonderful because of all the danger. Similarly, life is full of danger. Like Game of Thrones is full of danger. Relax. It's all for your own fun. You see, if you go and follow your dream, let's say right now you want to I don't know, be a writer, a poet, and you're worried about being poor. Let's say it happens. I'm not saying that if you follow your dharma you'll automatically make money. Most of the time, not always. Some people's karma is to follow their dharma and die. It happens. You know? Some people say, "Oh, I believe in God, I won't die." Sorry, you might die way before your time. <laughs> God will protect me. Yes. But sometimes you'll still die. So like what's up with that, right? Let's say it happens. Let's say you follow your dharma and let's say you actually end up under the 101, broke with a crippling drug habit and it's cold and you're about to breathe your last dying from hypothermia. This is going to sound flippant, but I'm going to ask you now, would that be so bad? Really? Would that really be worse than living every single day in denial of what it is you wanted to do? You know, you're so afraid to do what you want to do. Is that not eating at you more than you know, being under the bridge and cold and hungry? That's not that bad, actually. You know, anecdotally I'll say whatever the consequence is, it's not as bad as the fear of that consequence. And if that consequence were to come to pass, you know, when you die, and I'm not saying you won't, let's say you do die, you like get frostbite and die. When you die, and you might just have to take my word for it, for it here or the word of the scripture is that you will wake up to the dream that this was and smile. You know, so like Rumi says it best. He says, uh the the dreamer, this world is a dream. Only the sleeper considers it real. And then one day, death comes like a swift dawn and you will wake up laughing at your grief. at what you once thought was your grief. Oh, isn't that beautiful? You will wake up laughing at what you once thought was your grief. I have a friend who nearly drowned and she tells me that that was the most blissful experience of her life. Like while she was there and she knew that she was going to die, it was all peaceful and blissful. I know someone else whose arm, I mean like kind of like traumatic event happened to the body, like a lot of pain, and they often say in that moment they didn't feel the pain. The body went into shock and they didn't feel the pain. later there was pain but in that moment there was no pain this is a hunch but it makes me feel like maya has an inbuilt protection mechanism in which if something really bad happens you wake up from maya you're actually safe that's the that's the the, the hack you're actually whether you know it or not perfectly safe you can't fall you'll fall in mother's lap 
If you die, that would be okay. That's what spirituality is saying. Nothing will happen to you. You're scared of it, but then you'll smile. It's like, I used to go cliff diving in, in the Malibu Creek State Park, and people would be very scared to jump. And my first time, I was so scared, you know? And then I jumped and nothing happened. And I jumped a second time and nothing happened. I jumped a third time and nothing happened. And now it's not scary. I smile at it. And then I meet someone who is about to jump, who is shivering and afraid. I'm like, that's me. I was that. But that's only because they haven't done it yet. Similarly, you've all died before. You just don't remember. If you remember, what you'll know is that it's not bad. Nothing's bad. It's all play. It's all fun. Nothing can happen to you in this life. You know? <laughs> Beautiful. Okay, Brock. I see dear Brock there. I see Brock Christian. I see dear Anna. And um, I see Burnout. Yes, Brock. Uh, I have a quick question. I asked it on the Discord a couple of days ago, but I haven't been on there in a while, so I'm not sure if anybody... So I was wondering, and I have a hunch that it's a super simple answer, but what, when can somebody consider themselves to be a yogi? Like, what are, what's the criteria for that sort of distinction between a yogi and just like a normal person, I guess, or I don't know. Yeah, it's actually a very, very loaded question. You know, if we're going to approach it from an academic point of view, if you say I'm a yogi, you might mean that you are a practitioner of Patanjali system of meditation called Patanjala Yoga Shastra. Shastra means science. Patanjali is a great sage who systematized um, a system. <laughs> he systematized a system called yoga. So he's called a Maharshi, a great sage, because he kind of founded the tradition of yoga based on Upanishadic teachings. So, of course, it didn't come out of nowhere, but the system is accredited to Patanjali. So if you say you're a yogi, what you might mean is that you follow Patanjali's meditative practice. And in that sense, you might be implying that you are a Sankhyan because Patanjali premises his entire system off of the earlier philosophical school known as Sankhya. And in Sankhya, Purusha and Prakriti are two different things. There, there's a duality. Sankhya has duality. So if you say, I'm a yogi, I might think that what you're telling me is that I'm a Sankhyan I accept that there is Purusha and that Prakriti is a thing apart from Purusha. And my goal is to recognize myself as Purusha and disambiguate myself from Prakriti. So that's what I might think if you say I'm a yogi. Back in the day, you could see a yogi is sometimes used to mean a fully realized being. A yogin or a yogi is one who is yoked to their true nature as Purusha, who is yoked to reality. So yoga is used as the end of the practice, not the practice itself. Yoga means you did it. You're yoked. Yoga, you've, you've, you've achieved union. So a yogin, in one sense, is someone who did that. So you say, I'm a yogi. I might not just think that you're a Sankhyan. I might also think that you are a fully realized being. Though no such being will often say that. There's no one left to say, I'm a yogin. After you become a yogin, you no longer identify with the body-mind complex. You think a true yogi has no need to call themselves a yogi. Because there's no one left there to whom that label might apply. Such a person is beyond all labels. They are resting in that avishaya, that no thing that cannot be labeled, you know, as you know. So that's, that's two senses in which the word yogi is used classically. A person who's attained or a person who belongs to a certain school of philosophy. However, the practice is called sadhana. So if you were doing spiritual practice, the perhaps technical term for it would be sadhaka. I'm a sadhaka. I'm, I'm a practitioner. I'm a spiritual aspirant. You know, I'm a sadhaka. I do sadha, sadhana. Sadhana is the practice to acquire yoga. 
You know, by doing sadhana, I achieve union with my own spiritual ideal, whatever that might look like. I might be a Sankhyan and I want to be Purusha and I want to get out of Prakriti. Or I might be an Advaitin, Vedantin. I might say, I am Brahman and I want to realize that. You know, I do sadhana to whatever. So you could say I'm a sadhaka. However, you're right. The word yoga does get used in the sense of a practice, meaning like a sadhana. A sadhaka might be also called a yogi because there are many yogas like karma yoga, union through selfless work. There's bhakti yoga, union through devotion. There's jnana yoga, union through knowledge. There is, um, you know, all the raja yoga, union through meditation. Now, the path and the ends are the same. Union through bhakti, let's say union because here is our bhakta cat is here. We've got a buck. So union through bhakti, let's say. Um, you say, I'm a bhakti. The yogi, you're saying, I achieved union through bhakti. Or you might be saying, I am trying to get union through bhakti. They both mean the same thing. You see? So nowadays, when we say, I'm a yogi, what we're saying is, I'm a sadhaka. Right? I'm someone who is practicing spiritual disciplines in order to make spiritual progress and realize my spiritual goals. When I realize my spiritual goals, what will I be? The answer is, it doesn't matter. When I realize my spiritual goals, I will be that to which no labels apply and I will never have to articulate that to anybody. I do not have to have any credentials at that point. It's like uh, one scholar said about Swamiji, Swami Vivekananda. Swamiji, asking you for your credentials is like asking the sun for its right to shine. You know, a rich or truly rich person never has to tell anybody they're rich. It's the like nouveau rich person who's insecure about their wealth that needs to like flaunt it. They come with like a roaring limousine, like, and then they have to wear like swank clothes and speak in a swank transatlantic accent just so you know they're rich because they don't think that they're rich. But the truly rich person will come in flip flops and drive a simple car. They don't need to show that. Similarly, a real yogi, I will argue, someone who's actually practicing spiritual life doesn't feel the need. I'm just going to say this out there. I mean, People have problem with this, I'm sure. But does it feel the need to wear seven Rudraksha Mals outside the shirt? Walk around with like seven beads, like who has like a tattoo on the head, like Om here, like brah. My name is Purple Eric, brah. Didn't you know that crystals, brah, are like God? Yeah, this 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 selenite, brah. Look at it. It's, it's God. You know what I mean? Like these, these types are very invested. I, and it's part of the journey. We all have to go through that stage because, you know, if that guy wasn't identifying as that, he'd still have a drug problem. You know what I mean? It's important. I'm, I'm not belittling these people. I'm saying that if you need to do that, you probably do. You probably need that identity, you know? But a truly mature spiritual practitioner doesn't feel the need to make a big deal of their spirituality to parade it about. So they're often not going to say, I'm a yogi. It won't, uh, let's just say this, it won't appear in their Instagram, uh, what do you call it? Thing like, yogi. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, their bio. It won't appear there like, dog mom, yogi. You know, it's, a, it's very unlikely that they're going to say they're a yogi if they're actually involved in the process of unlearning what they think they are. You know, so I would say then, a person who's genuinely interested in sadhana is also not interested in labeling what they do or who they are. You know, I had this moment where for a long time I was, I'm, I grew up Shaiva, you know, the Shaiva yoga tradition. So I would encounter a lot of teachings that to me seemed distinctly Shaivite. And it was a very influential tradition. Tantra emerged within Shaivism and spread all over India. It's a pan-Indian movement. 
you know, and, and I was like kind of caught up with the label of Shaivism, like what makes something Shiva. And I was interested in Satchidananda Shiva as opposed to Brahman. I was kind of attached to the label Shiva. And then it occurred to me that there are no proper nouns in Sanskrit. Do you know that? There are no, there's no capitalization in Sanskrit. So Shiva is both a name and a noun that means auspiciousness. So when you say iti shivam, you're not saying all of this is Shiva, you're saying all of this is blessed. So that it occurred to me then that the goal of Shaivism is to get to a place when all of it is Shiva, which means all of it is blessed, whatever you call it. You know, so you can think of spiritual progress then as a process of leaving behind all labels and descriptions for what it is you do. You no longer have a concept about any of it. That's maturity. So I'm giving you perhaps two answers, one on a conceptual academic level and another on a practical experiential level. Let me now address those people for whom labels are important. I'm, I, I know I made fun of that earlier, but actually it's important. It's good in the beginning to identify yourself as a yogi. Remember, you can't get rid of the ego. I mean, you can, but let's, let's not like pretend like we have when we haven't. I, I feel it. I feel a strong sense of I. I know I, I'm Nish. I'm not yet ready to say I am Brahman. I don't know that, you know. I've heard it, and maybe I believe it, but I don't know it. Because if I knew it, I would act differently in my life. But I don't. I act like a Nish, you see. There's a sense of I-ness. As long as that's there, it's better that Nish identifies himself as a devotee of God, as a yogi, as a servant of the divine. Because that ego is much better than Nish is a yoga teacher. Nish is a... Uh, an enlightener of the masses. Nish is a rock star. Nish plays guitar in a rock band. You know, like, that would be the, the ego. That would be what it wants. If not, Nish is a servant of God. So if you need to have an ego, Ramakrishna would say, have the ripe ego of the servant's ego or the devotee's ego or whatever. So if you want to call yourself a yogi and if such a thing is helping you practice yoga, then it's good. If you call yourself a yogi and such a thing is only adding another label, another layer of identification that takes you away from yourself, then it's bad. You see, so ultimately we must gauge, is that labeling valuable to us where we are in our current journey? That's the only question you need to ask, you know. Thank you. See, I kind of, I knew yoga to mean like union originally. But I've kind of always like just subconsciously associated it with like the practice of yoga or like the, the four, I guess, practices of yoga. So I guess my preconceived notion of it was that sadhaka, like you said, that it's someone who practices yoga. But I guess it is, it, that makes sense that it's also someone who has achieved yoga yes you know there's a teaching there the end result of a practice is also the means for attaining it right you know that's true in indian spirituality it's like what 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 am i doing bhakti yoga for i'm predominantly a bhakti yogi right i'm predominantly a bhakta Mm. now what am i doing it for love of god how will i achieve love for love's sake by loving god it's kind of ironic right by loving love Mm. for its own sake my fruit is that (laughs) <laughs> so you could call this the, the destination of the path is the walking of the path, the pathless path. The, the fun of it is, you see, Shiva came here for fun, right? So the, the walking is the fun. The walking is the point. So you're right. Yoga is both attainment and the means to get it. Right. And you use uh, the guitar analogy a lot. It's like to learn to play guitar, you need to play guitar. Play guitar. Yes, you got it. That's so good. That's such a good point. <laughs> 
<laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. I must get some rest. Beautiful question. Nice to see your face. Yeah. <laughs> Good night to you, dear Brock. Thank you for the beautiful question. Jai, Ambe, Brock. Bye bye. Good. All right. Let's see. Christian is here. What beautiful lighting. Christian is like a hacker in the dark. Yes, Christian. There we go. I had to find my mute. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I am like a little bit in the dark here. <laughs> good. Um, I didn't have any questions. I just wanted to share a little bit. Like I was really looking forward when I saw your message earlier in Discord. I was like, oh, man, like this is the lecture that I've been wanting, you know, because I feel like I appreciate Alex sharing earlier and I feel like kind of blocked like that. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I can cut through that. Um, so I just wanted to share a couple of things that you mentioned that resonated me with me. Like for one, I really appreciate you going through and like talking about what ways you can recognize spiritual progress, because I felt like I've kind of believed a lot of this for myself intellectually for like a, a while. And so, and I felt like I haven't had a lot of progress. Um, for some time and like that kind of thinking makes me feel depressed and it makes me want to wallow and stuff so being able to you know see the progress and recognize it and know that I do have progress that's an amazing feeling so thank you for that um, you mentioned also one thing that I'm realizing a lot as far as like how I can cut through that and one thing that I do wrong. I mean, we talked about Maya and some of that other stuff, but one of the last things that you said really um, resonated with me, which was um, basically like, I can't remember exactly the words that you were saying, but it was the idea of Ramakrishna saying, he who thinks about sin becomes a sinner. You know, the things that we focus on are, um, what we end up becoming. And I think a lot, a big part of your lecture was um, like, you kind of commended us that are here because um, we're strengthened by this. You know what I mean? It's something that um, we have some type of focus for. I mean, there's different levels for that, but it's something that we're drawn to, like you were saying, and being open with ourselves to be able to like be drawn to things like this, you know? And so <clears throat> To me, that just kind of translates to that kind of one-pointedness to God. You know, we have that kind of strength. We have that kind of draw. And so just being able to sit with that and focus on that and like being open to that, you know, I think is a big thing. Like maybe I'm not yet truly open to that. So a lot of stuff for me to work on. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Thank you. And thanks everybody else. Oh, Christian, what a beautiful share. Swami Vivekananda always said, uh, what a sin to call people sinners. No, you are all children of immortal bliss. He loved to call people that. Oh, bye, dear Alicia. So good to have you. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, but um, I love that. You know, I, w I want more than anything to encourage people to live a spiritual life. Um, but the best way to do that is just to look at all of the people in this room who are doing it. Because you realize right now, there are 31 people all over the world in a Zoom room who have been speaking about spirituality for at least two hours now and at least one third of this room has been here since 4.30, meaning at this point they've been here four and a half hours practicing yoga, 
meditating for an hour, doing tantric puja, talking about spirituality, and now having this discussion. That means that there are at least in this world 30 people who have felt the pull and are allowing themselves to be drawn into what's interesting to them. I mean, this is a real sign of progress, like that you're here, you know? What renunciation? You could be doing something else, building your investment portfolio, for instance, <laughs> you know? Yes, you're here though, and that's interesting. That's really important. So yes, I want to, above all, commend us all for taking the time out of our lives to nurture and cultivate that part of us that we know is most worthwhile in cultivating, spirituality. So you're right, let's focus on that. Let's say, oh, look at me, I'm here. I'm doing it. I'm interested. I'm thinking about it. I'm holding myself accountable. And I'm here with my brothers and sisters and siblings who are doing the same. So I'm not alone. And either we all do it or none of us do it. And hand in hand, arm in arm, we go together. You know? Yes. If you don't mind, actually, you reminded me a little bit about what I wanted to share. Yes. Um, but yeah, it goes along with like kind of having that one pointedness. Um, I have, I fortunately have like a pretty good employer right now. It's like a big fortune 500 company, but the leadership at this company seems to care a lot, um, you know, more than just like, Hey, let's get everything done. You know, they're very conscious of like, we want employees that are, you know, strengthened by what we're, we're doing. We want you to be able to do things that, you know, energize you and motivate you. And obviously their reasoning for that is for their business goals, you know, they believe, fortunately, they believe that helping people be successful will help their business be successful. So that's why I'm lucky to work there. But one thing that they've done to kind of show that they care is by doing like strength finders, you guys might have heard like Clifton strength finders. And at my work, they talk a lot about like, oh, we want you to play to your strengths, understand your strengths. And that has really, you know, been great. I think it makes me think great about the company and stuff, but it makes me realize that I'm not really doing the same for myself. You know, even though I'm trying to focus at work on what strengthens me at home, I realize that spirituality and, you know, having and, and this type of thing is what strengthens me, but I'm not really doing myself the same service all the time at home and focusing on my strengths and having that kind of one pointedness. Like, like I was saying earlier, I felt for a while that I, you know, wasn't having progress and it's easy to slip into like focusing on, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm not, you know, meditating. I'm doing all these other things. You know, I'm focusing on the things that I'm doing that are drawing me away from what's actually strengthening me. So, you know, hopefully I can figure out how to implement it at home as well as work <laughs> and focus on what actually strengthens me. But yeah, thank you for letting me share. What a beautiful message. I love how Song says, I have hope. <laughs> but all the enlightened companies in the world and all the enlightened people like this making this decision to focus on their strengths. Beautiful. Uh, strength is Vivekananda's favorite word. It, word. If it strengthens you, keep it. If it weakens you, throw it. Strength is life. Weakness is death. Expansion is life. Contraction is death. So in Tantra, we say it's a life-affirming attitude that we want. You know, we want to be like full of life and vigor and joy. So nice, Kristen. Thank you, brother. Thank you, dear Christine. Yes. All right. Let's see. Anna. Hello, dear Anna. Hi, how are you? Welcome, dear. Very well. And yourself? I'm good. Thank you. I just wanted to share a little bit about my experience with spirituality. Uh, first, 
first of all, when I found you, I was I didn't realize until now that I was kind of in a uh, I always forget the like depressed state. Like a slump, you mean like a or or no, Thomas, 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 energy, Thomas, yeah, yeah, like a Thomas. I think I was in a yeah, I was like in a Thomastic state. Now I realize that looking back, and it, it had gone on for like a long time. Like, like it was hard to get up out of bed. Like, and like I woke up and I was like like bombarded with negative thoughts. And difficulties like, oh, God, a new day of fighting against the world. And and I didn't even know. I didn't. I, I thought that it was normal. Like, oh, yeah, it's because I have a business. It's because I have a lot of things going on. It's normal. And I even I told you about it, that I went to therapy for like a like a, like a year. And it, it did help because I kind of became more sensitive to my my thoughts and, and emotions and and I was like more focused on myself because of, of that and after I found you I was like you know what might as well like, I have yeah I have things to do like I have to work and I have to get up early yeah I didn't wake up early but you know what I'm just gonna meditate like screw it like I'm gonna meditate and if if someone gets mad or something goes wrong in my business oh oh well and because you know I, I had nothing to lose I was already depressed so I just like started meditating and it was not immediate obviously like everything that I learned from you like like the philosophy part was incredibly strengthening like i started to to see more like live in the moment even if it sounds cliche but you know what i mean and <laughs> and i did asana and i did feel good like physically i started feeling better and then uh i don't know I just started praying. I I did everything that you said said I should do, and like my I I also like got rid of a of a like anti religion part of me that was. Now that I see it, I was like I, I realized how messed up that is because that's such a big part in someone's life. Like I I was raised in the Catholic religion and my mom is super Catholic and like everybody around me talks about God. And since I was like, so adverse to it, I, it was like blocking out like a huge part of life. So after I learned about all these things with you, I, I, I've become more perceptive and I think it's so easy like to join God, like the conversation of God after you are like you don't block it <laughs> so every 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 time i say thank god which is something i said all the time before now i say it like thank god <laughs> like the actual god the one that like the, the real one you know it's real like i'm talking with people and i'm like oh you guys god is real like 
like it's not a joke like miracles exist like nish has told me about all of these things you can do (laughs) with it like if you believe in everything and and so yeah and then uh everything that i have told you before like i got sick i stopped meditating and i stopped doing asana which i was Star, everyone's so happy about my. my I'm sorry about that. Accidentally got bumped off. So I, I had you up till I stopped doing asana, and then I lost you. Then. Yeah, yeah, but I'll start over tomorrow. That's what I was saying. But I just feel like that period of my life in which I was ignoring my mind stuff and my fears, and you know, like going with the flow. Uh, I think that that opened up like a whole new place for me and like like, you know I got sick like physically sick I got COVID and then I got like a sickness in the stomach and then I realized that I had like anxiety produced because of my sickness and like I think that all those things happen so in a way I could also be okay with not being like totally uh spiritual because after that after i got sick and everything not spiritual but like doing the practice like because i'm like such a toxic like you tell me that i have to do something every day and that's gonna be beneficial for me i'm gonna think i'm such a bad person for not doing this (laughs) every day like I don't know how but I'm gonna find a way for this to be hard for me (laughs) like my mind's gonna find a way and so I did like find it because I got sick you know and I was like no I can't be I can't meditate I'm sick and I kind of felt sad about it like I was like oh my god I should start doing it I'm feeling guilty so after like I got better and like all the things have like flown and uh I just feel like I'm in such a good place right now like for the first time in a long time I feel like things don't affect me as much and like I have somewhere to go like if I if I feel something like I just have to tune in with like like the silence like like it's always there and and also like there are so many things going around me like my family like a bomb exploded in my family so i've always been so like like i've always felt like i have a responsibility with making everybody feel good in my family like i'm a healer kind of thing but not like a healer but like the balanced person in the family you know so I don't feel anymore like I have to do stuff. Like, I just feel like I have to, like, be there. Like, you told me, like, just, like, be there and 
like share your energy and stuff. And I don't feel anymore like I have a responsibility of fixing everybody's life. And in like you say, like focus on yourself and focus on your practice. And and that has worked so much. Like it's made I feel like it's made me so much stronger. So that's that yeah and like hopeful and like <laughs> nothing can mess with me anymore you know <laughs> like I have a, a shield like a real solid shield shield <laughs> so yeah that's been my experience and I always share everything that you talk about so thank you and like thank you for making me stronger <laughs> <laughs> makes you stronger. Kali makes us stronger. And then the beautiful thing is none of these are my teachings at all, just the messenger. But it's so beautiful that for 5,000 years, you know, Indian society has been working on it because they felt from the very beginnings of the civilization that there is a problem. And that problem is yeah. the mind is such a nuisance. You know, I don't, I practice, it makes fuss. I don't practice, it makes fuss. I help my family, it makes fuss. I don't help my family, it makes fuss. I focus on myself, it makes fuss. I leave myself alone and focus on others, it makes fuss. <laughs> Immediately we realize there is nothing that we can do in the mind that's going to be good. Like the idea that, oh, I have to do this, oh I have to do that. It's bad if I don't do this. It's good if I do that. All of that's just the mind, right? Yeah. And you know what I've noticed too? Like I was in a trip recently and I was on vacation. So it was like stronger. The feeling of letting go of the mind was so much stronger this time. Like I, w I gave my, myself a full permission to let go of it. And I actually felt the moment in which I had thought enough for the day. Like it was 1 p.m. And I was like, I've been thinking all day. <laughs> and like, stop that. <laughs> so I was like, you know, like, this is God, you know, I was, this is like the thing that I'm constantly, every time I feel battered about something like my mind takes me somewhere negative. I'm like, focus on God, like here, like, you know, like connect with it. Oh my God. I'm that, that gives me chills to hear. And I'm sure everyone's really like resonating with so much of what you said, because you just spelled out for us the entire arc of moving from a place of believing every single thought that I think to realizing that I am not my mind to realizing I don't have to believe what my mind tells me, to being able to say something like, focus on God, I know what that is now. It's real. That's huge, Anna. For you, God is not a belief. Like a lot of people get so frustrated because they believe in God because a pastor told. That's it. All they have is a belief. And that's wonderful, but it's fragile. That belief won't hold up to life, right? It makes you even like worse off. Because now that God will send you to hell if you don't like do the right ritual. <laughs> but um, you, you can say that is real because you know what it is. You know that God is awareness and you know that that's what you are. And you know that anytime this all-pervasive God is everywhere, this eternal God is every time. So now is as good a place to meet her. Here is as good a place to meet her because she is you. And you're able to now say, I feel that living presence and I can just stop and sit with it. And that's, that's a huge thing, Anna. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I know. Thank you for showing me it. <laughs> It shows itself. But how someone was very weird, uh, frightened of thinking about God all the time. They thought, you know, because they say in the Bible, and I think, I don't know if Angela is here, but Angela looked, the mother Mary. Behind Anna is just Mary. There she oh, is. Yeah. <laughs> and Angela might enjoy that. She's here for y'all. <laughs> the Byzantine Orthodox, there's Angela. So I see. But um, 
You know, Ramakrishna was asked a lot of questions by devotees and, and they're like, it's wonderful to read the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna and see how the same questions about spiritual life are being asked at all times in history. In the Upanishads, the same people are asking the same question. I mean, the same questions are being asked. And that's like 2600 BCE India, or by conservative estimates, like 1500 BCE India. Um, and then even in 1890s Bengal, people are asking the same questions. And one question was, like about that line in the Bible, wisdom with God is foolishness with the world. So as a business owner, you're probably thinking like, well, if I take all this time to meditate, my business is going to tank. It's foolish to focus on myself and, and practice. That sounds ridiculous. I should be stressing out over my business. Or it's foolish for me to not like tell my family something that will make them feel better. I should be talking more. It's foolish to sit there and smile while they like, you know, go through their stuff. So you see, the way the world thinking works is it makes everything spiritual sound dumb. Like, like lies, you know? And when you get into spiritual life and you start to think about God, it makes all the world stuff stuff sound dumb. Now, when you start to learn this stuff in the beginning, devotees often feel like, what if I go insane? Like, what if I don't become functional in the world? What if I'm impractical, right? That, that's the fear. <laughs> I thought exactly that. Like, I was telling my husband one time, Nish, what Nish says, like, the ideal is basically going crazy. Yes. <laughs> that's the only way. Yes. I could like describe it, but you've talked more about it. And now that idea is way, way out. Exactly. So I wanted to address that because I know that's what it sounds like from the point of view of the world. This sounds like sheer insanity, right? Like so crazy. And someone once asked Ramakrishna, won't I go crazy thinking about God all the time? And Ramakrishna's response was stunning because remember, Pragyaman Brahma, God is consciousness. Do you know that? We feel that to be true. So Ramakrishna said, Whoever became unconscious by thinking of consciousness itself. See, what a stunning response. The answer is you will be saner than ever because you will get to the ultimate level of lucidity and clarity and purity. You'll be perfectly functional. You just won't care about the things that other people care about. And that will make you insane to them. They'll look at you and be like, you're a raving lunatic. And they said that about Ramakrishna. He was so full of love and joy, smiling all the time, beaming. And they said, like, what is this smiling fool? And they used to say, crazy guy. And once they asked him, Thakur, Ramakrishna, you know, does that bother you? Does it bother you that people call you a crazy madman of Dakshineshwar? He smiled and very sweetly he said, my son. Or he would never say that. He, he would say, you know, like, he, he didn't like the, the feeling of being like a father. So how can I be your father? I'm the child of the mother. So he wouldn't have said that. But he said something like, my love, my, my, my fella, um, everyone's crazy about something. Some people are crazy about money. Some people are crazy about family. I'm crazy about God. So why should I bother if crazy people call me crazy? What he didn't say was different types of craziness have different results. Those who are crazy for money get crazier and crazier and crazier and they're not fulfilled. Their craziness isn't wonderful. My craziness is wonderful. I am mad and in love. I'll take that any day. Of all the madnesses I could have chosen in this world, mad for money, mad for family, mad for fame, I'm happy I chose mad for God. And every day I get a little more cuckoo up here. And it's wonderful. <laughs> yes. You know, I think one fear of madness is ostracization. One deep fear is if I start living my life according to different ideals, I won't be able to relate with others anymore. And worse, they'll think I'm mad and they'll cast me out. That's the fear of madness, actually. The fear of being alone. But right now, in this Zoom room, all across America, and probably in a city near you, there is someone who's just as mad, if not more so mad than you. 
The thing about Sangha is you can look around the room and go, I'm not alone. Other people are crazy about this stuff too. Um, and in this gathering of drunkards and intoxicants and, and mad, intoxicated, mad, God-drunken lovers, you feel at home. And that's the important thing. It's like, we will always find our community if our intention, you know, if our, if our intention is like, oh, spirituality, there's no way you won't draw that into your life. So if you love money, you will draw into your life people who love money. And you'll all be mad about money together and you'll star in Wolf of Wall Street. Like that's, that's what will happen. And if you love like sex, your life will be surrounded by like BDSM LA Dungeon West. It's a joke. In LA, they have this like place. It's like a sex club and it's called Dungeon West. You know? And I'm like, yeah, of course you're going to end up there. You're going to look around and everything's going to be like made out of leather. You know, you're just going to be like, oh, of course. Of course I'm with the sex people. Or like if you love money, you're going to be with the money people. And if you love fame, you're going to be with the fame people. So crazies always find their fellow crazies. So if you go crazy for God, don't be afraid that you're going to be alone. You'll never be alone. Cause no, I mean, you know, I, I, there's a thing today, just today, I had like a realization that uh, like when, when, you, when you talk about being crazy about money and stuff, like I never thought about my business in that way. Like, oh yeah, money, money, money. But it was like, like, uh, like a success thing. Like I have to make it a success. Like I can't, like, I just have to, like, it has to happen. And that like, you know, obviously caused so much stress. Like my, my, if my business fails, you know, my world is over. And so like every day there's a problem that there's nothing that, doesn't bring a problem that we do in our business. Like everything has a problem. So every day there's a problem. And before it was like so stressful, like, Oh God, my business can fail today. And now it's like, it's not like stressful at all. First of all, but second, like I had the realization today that it feels like, like I was thinking like if Nish knew how much I'm working in my business right now, he could he could get to think that I'm doing this because I want success, like I, I'm obsessed with success. But it feels like dharma now. It feels like I'm just doing what I have to do. Like it's not because I'm afraid. It's because that's just what you do, girl. You know, <laughs> like just do what you do. <laughs> like but. The problem, who can solve that problem that happened in my business? Only me. Like, I am bound to that for now. And I made my peace with it because that that was my fear. Like, that was like one of the not being spiritual enough fears that I had. Like, if I let go completely, I'm going to lose my business. But now it feels like my business is taking me, you know, like I'm just driving with it, like rolling. So. Yeah, that's what I realized. Today. You're making a hugely important point. I'm really happy we're taking the time with this conversation because, you know, as, as Rose is saying here, it addresses a lot of the things that I think we all feel. And I think Kat and Song were both saying earlier about how much resonance what you're saying has because it really is uh, the, the testimony of someone who is actually sincerely and genuinely doing this, who's listening to the teachings, engaging with the teachings, applying the teachings, and getting the fruit of the teachings. So I love you know, just taking the time to zero in on some of the insights that you've had, because the last thing you said was important. On the outside, it might look like you're working hard, just as hard as someone who's driven by fear of not being as successful as they want to be. 
you know, but the difference yeah. is in texture, not in what you do, but how it feels to do what you do. You know, so I would argue that yeah. a lot, and you're already in your dharma and a lot of people are doing what they know they should be doing. It's just that the mind is so tricky that it finds a way to make that a new anxiety drama. It, it gets like, oh, this is so big. It's such a big deal. Like it needs to be a success because if it's not, then I won't get the love I want. And what I, my opinion of myself is a successful do-gooder. I, I really don't think people who want money want money. Greed is not so much a desire for more money. You know, it's a desire for this idea of like success or, or, or something. It's like just rajas. Right. You know, so the way you're able to say, well, now the doing has taken on a different quality. It's because you're rooted in being. So it's no longer you doing it. The doing does itself. The Anna body mind complex goes on, but you are enlivened by it. It's like that verse, one of my favorite verses in the Gita. Which means prakriti alone, nature alone is doing what needs to be done. The body needs to digest food. It digests its own food. If the business needs someone to make a decision, that will happen. You just sit and smile and think about God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like inside, I'm always thinking about it. So yes. it just feels so comforting and great. <laughs> yes, beautiful, beautiful. I want to do one time, we'll just have a lecture on like how um, success, something like about how success is inevitable when you're in love with God. Something like that, how you become so functional and just so charismatic that opportunities appear for you. Like life becomes so effortless. And I want to explore what you're saying now. It's effortlessness. Yeah, and I think I think it's like like losing the fear because that like you know, I heard all your podcast podcasts. I heard the journey to Tantra, like everything. I'm I'm soaked. Uh and I got the the idea like from listening to you all the time, all the time, all the time. And you're like, don't don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And I think that that is what actually happened like i lost the fear and like i i like i don't know if i decided it and that's one of like a question i had for you like is it a decision to be spiritual like do you think that one decides mentally yes. or like does it decide you like <laughs> oh. yeah so i don't know if there was a moment in which i decided to lose fear it kind of like happened because I was depressed because I was like, I have nothing to lose. <laughs> yes. It's both. I mean, there's no free will. Everything happens by the will of the divine. It's all karma. And you will read only what you deserve to read. As Vivekananda says, you will understand in what you read, only what you deserve to understand. And you will act only on what you deserve to act upon. And you will get only what you deserve. So the idea is if you are here at all, it's past karma. If you understand anything, it's past karma, but we shouldn't, go like that we should um, pretend instead like we have free will that we are responsible for what we do and it was your decision one day you felt the resonance of what was being said at the podcast in these lectures and you made the decision to immerse yourself you see i didn't say it today but a lot of the reason we don't make progress is because we spend a little bit of time engaging with these teachings and a lot of the time being indoctrinated by the world as to what's important You did it the right way, which is you soaked yourself, as you said. You listened to everything, like everything that was there, you heard, which is awesome. And now you're enjoying the fruit. And the fruit is your intellect has been purified. You heard the message enough times to the point at which it undid your conditioning. Your cultural conditioning has been replaced by a new conditioning. And you're able to toss both conditioning patterns out. 
and now you're enjoying the fruit. So for anybody listening, I mean, this is the first thing you got to do is you just got to listen to it. All, all of it, listen to all of it and listen to it all the time. You know, over and over, the same thing will be said. I think even Lisa said earlier that Krishna repeats himself. Over and over, Krishna is saying the same thing. But you need that, right? You need that divine monotony. Yeah, and, it, and I think that it helps that when you are listening, like, even if you don't understand absolutely everything, because I'm, you know, like, but, like, there's, like, a part that fills your heart. Like, you feel so, like, hugged mm. with this philosophy. So, so it's not that hard. It's not hard at all. Yes. So I would say that's your decision. Your decision to really listen to everything, your decision to act on it, all of that you could say you did. Why did you do it? Because of the grace of God. <laughs> yeah, but I don't want to take any more of your time and everyone must have questions. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Anna. I just, uh, thank you for sharing that. It was a great delight. And I'm so happy to hear. Thank you for that gift of sharing your experience. Wonderful. Oh, good, good. So I see Bernal here. Come, brother. Hello, brother. Hello, uh, what was your name? Sorry, I just, uh, Nish, okay. Do you hear me? Yes, beautifully. Okay, yeah, I, it's, uh, I, I don't know if you, you noticed that you can reach Mexico, like I'm in Mexico, and I assume you are like in California? Yes, yes, I'm in California. Yeah, okay, it's, it's pretty far from where am I at, so I just thinking of how this algorithm works like does it really work in your zone or can it go like further away i don't know what do you mean how, how does what work like spiritual transmission uh, no no just technical stuff right like i yeah I, i'm i'm very into your conversation like i i think i i feel uh same energy, like the same conversation, but I kind of more analytical. Like I'm, right. a, I'm a PhD chemist student, right? Good. Like if I'm talking here, it's because we kind of resonate, right? Like right. it's not right. that we speak the a different language. It's just semantics, right? Like symbols. Right. Symbols. Um, yes. And and I feel that energy. I feel like very. Identify, especially I, I follow you on TikTok. So your last post was about the the benefits or how you you measure your progress. And I identify myself with all three like perfectly. But I wonder why because I don't really meditate. I just I'm a nerd. Like I I really like to <laughs> to to see stuff from a different perspective, and I'm learning quite a lot and honestly i think the covid 19 the pandemic was a blessing for me yes really. I, it was like a straight like stop take a break and this is the i'm, I'm in my best moment like I, I suspended like a lot of things and i'm supposed to be in china like doing my PhD, but because of that i'm not in a lab i'm not doing anything experimental <laughs> And and sometimes I say I don't give a shit about my career. I just just flowing, right? Uh, but it feels strange. Like I say, this is the way you're supposed to feel when you meditate. But 
I actually hate meditation. I, I have a prejudgment against meditation because I used to follow a group and it was very dogmatic. It was, it felt everything forced like an obligation, almost like a health prescription, like from the doctor, like take this pill three times <laughs> per day, 20 minutes. Honestly, I felt so bad if I didn't meditate as if I was not taking my medicine for uh, anxiety or like, what was it? Antidepressants. Like, I think it was like the opposite, going the opposite. Like, I felt so depressed if I don't do it. So <laughs> I, 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 I'm glad I recognize it. Like, I, I didn't last too much with that, honestly. Uh, it was very boring, felt very mechanic, and felt terrible. Sometimes it was relaxing, right? Like the breathing patterns that creates, it's uh, relaxing. I guess uh, that was kind of the the feeling, right? Uh, I'm, I'm, and I became, a, a, because I'm a very nerd person, I, I studied breathing patterns. Uh -huh. And I know that they scientifically, it's proven that they change the physiology of the, the body. Like you can make it more energetic or, or more chill. And yeah, it, it, this also maybe resonates with the meditation. I don't know what kind of meditation you do really. Uh, I think it's like chanting or... You, you can explain more in detail, right? Uh, because I'm new here, by the way. Um, yeah, I'm happy to be oh, here. It's a joy to meet you, Bernal. I would say, you know, what great karma that your natural state is already a spiritual, um, like kind of a sense of spiritual understanding of that I am not the mind. Thoughts are just symbols. That's a huge thing. A lot of people don't know that thoughts are symbols, that words, thoughts, language, like a lot of people take it too literally, too seriously as if the signifier and the thing being signified were the same thing, as if the map was the territory. So your ability to first and foremost see a gap between the thoughts and what they're pointing to is very important. And it's great karma, we would say. Great, great karma that you're here in this incarnation, in this body with some health and some understanding. That's awesome. And it's a great launching off point. I love how you said about meditation. There are groups out there who make you feel like if you don't chant, if you don't do your meditation, if you don't follow the breath, you're a terrible person, you're a sinner. And then the thing that's supposed to remove your anxiety becomes the thing that gives you anxiety. Like, that's why we say, don't obsess about what you eat. Like there are some people who have turned religion into like food business. They're like that's impure. I can't eat that. They freak out if they eat a little bit of this or, you know, oh my God, God hates me now. <laughs> so you're right. The first thing that we came here in the West to do was to overturn this idea of like a judgmental God who will send you to eternal barbecue for not following prescribed rights. <laughs> and the nature of the mind is just to punish itself. It likes that. It's like some weird masochist kind of thing. So if it can do that in religion, it will do it. You know? So you're right. We don't want that. We want something that doesn't feel forced, more like effortful. That's why, as you said, Bernal, your nature is analytical. And so we say, there are four types of yogas and each of them correspond to aspirants with different aptitudes. Some people are more analytical, more able to work with thought symbols, have more like kind of clarity of mind to follow intellectual inquiry. For those people, the path is jnana yoga. 
And the meditation of jnana yoga, yoga uh, being a means for attainment and the attainment, as we discussed earlier, jnana means knowledge. So the yoga of knowledge or the yoga of philosophy is listening to teachings, analyzing the truth value of that teaching, inquiring into it in a kind of like debate-like way, you know, a very critical thinking kind of way. And then knowing that it's true. Once you see that it's true in your intellect, you live according to that. So for you, the part yeah, like of dialogue. dialogue. Sorry for interrupting. I, I want to say the word you, that I'm like a more intellectual yoga yeah. or yogi. Of course. Yana it feels strange, right? That I don't need to meditate or do I need to? Well, you will. You'll come to it. So here's the thing. It, it will only deepen. So you're here now because there's a process of evolution occurring. And that process is, it, it, you never get to the end of it. There's no place where you can stop and say, I did it. I'm done. I don't need to do anything anymore. No, you'll do it because it's internally rewarding. It's fun. It's intrinsically valuable to have this conversation. Sooner or later, you will get back to meditating on your own terms. You won't follow some weird cult-like group who will tell you to do it 20 minutes or you're going to hell. You'll just find your own way. You'll be like, you'll just want to, trust me. Like you just continue this path and you will want to meditate for sure. But I want to stress that meditation becomes in so many flavors. So as you said, chanting, that's it. So I will say jnana yoga meditation is very specific. In jnana yoga, the idea is to get a teaching and to meditate on that teaching, which can look like a contemplation exercise. It might not like be meditation in the traditional sense of following the breath. It might be more like sitting and just being with the thought uh, that you've learned, like an idea, I'm not the body, I'm not the mind, and really becoming very focused on that contemplation. That's one type of meditation, jnana yoga type, nididhyasana style meditation. Then there's another type of meditation through karma yoga, the yoga of selfless service. Some people, they're not so analytical. They're more like, you know, their will is the strongest faculty, you could say. They like to do stuff, move around the world, fix this, fix that. They're very active learners, you know. You said those people do karma yoga. Karma yoga is like the practice of selflessly serving others. Good night, dear Seneca. And that can be a meditation too. Like when you're really focusing on the work and you know you have nothing to gain, nothing to lose. You're doing this work as worship. You're doing this work as selfless service. It becomes a meditation. So people who are very active, they do meditation through karma yoga. People who are very intellectual do meditation through contemplation, jnana yoga. In my case, I'm like an artistic kind of faculty where I'm a poet, a guitar player. I'm very like emotional and sentimental. So for me, bhakti yoga, that's the prescribed path for me, which is a prayer. I do pujas, ritual worship. And you're right, chanting, singing the name of the Lord, praying. But I meditate in a traditional sense a lot too. So raja yoga, that's the that's meditation, meditation proper. You know, raja yoga, you sit there and you bring your mind to a single point and you're just like, you know, meditation. Now, we say we all have different proclivities, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't use all of this all at once. So if I were to tell you what kind of yogi I am, I would say I'm a bhakta. You know, that's what I, my predominant path is bhakti, worship. However, I meditate thrice a day for an hour each time, most days, and some days 30 minutes. For, and I'm meditating all the time, 40, like at least 40 minutes sitting there doing straight meditation. Then this is to me karma yoga. Before we start, I do a mantra. Now I'm doing it for nothing, for the sake of just being with you as gods. I'm looking at you, Bernal, now, and I know I'm looking at Shiva. And my work now is worship to you. That's karma yoga. You know, then after this, uh, you know, I'll study all these texts, jnana yoga. So karma, bhakti, raja, jnana, it's all together being used. You say, do you need to meditate? Well, given that there are so many flavors of meditation, you'll eventually be drawn to one or more and you'll do that. Not because you have to, not because there's anything to gain, 
but because it's just more deepening it's fun it's just intrinsically valuable you know to learn as you said you love to learn you know it's the point yeah i i i, I actually learned languages also huh. like i love to go back to other languages that i used to to do and now i'm have the same feeling about meditation it feels like very very desirable right i <sighs> like I, I said you feel like it but I keep questioning myself because I had bad experience with meditation. <laughs> you are like the Catholic who was forced to go to Sunday school, except for you, it was meditation. <laughs> because I, in Mexico, we have a Christian Catholic church. I, I, I was an atheist before the meditation. So I, 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 that was like my first religion or something <laughs> like that. So I really hate it. I, no. I I honestly have a negative bias against uh, meditation. It's like a trauma. Yeah. But not, not in a bad way, right? Like, I don't see it as a bad thing. Yeah. But I don't trust it. Because I, and of that's those previous. Honor that. You know, like, there are some people who are so scarred in their upbringing when it comes to devotion. Like, the idea of praying to God and the idea of God being like this figure that you can talk to is kind of scary. They've had that trauma, you know, so they don't trust it. They're like whenever someone talks to them about devotion, they get kind of like, they get hives. They don't trust it, you know? So honestly, here in America, I, you're all my family. And at this time of night, the group gets small enough that I, I don't mind being more personal with you. I know most of you in this yeah. room. So now I don't mind talking about my bhakti, my devotion. But generally speaking, this kind of attitude of devotion is for a lot, a lot of Americans very off-putting because they, they've been scarred that way by the church, you know? So that, that's their fear. And their, so they can't trust it. Now, for that kind of person, they cannot start with devotion. They've been, they've been harmed. They have to come in through a different door, which is philosophy or selfless or something. like. That. There are many doors to enter the mansion. With you, meditation was your life. So now you have this, I don't trust meditation thing. It's okay. Who cares? Give meditation to the dogs. There's so much other stuff you can do. <laughs> so many other yeah, things. I'm really enjoying it. No, yeah. Sorry. No, no, go on. Uh, I just lost the, the track. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you're saying I'm really enjoying, which I love to hear. What a beautiful phrase. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> yeah, truly. Uh, yeah. I, I, I have to admit that I, I've chilled today a little bit because I had some, some weed, but it's, it's not too much. Yeah, that, no, I'm so I'm happy to meet you. Huh? So happy to meet you. Please keep coming to the yeah. feast. We'll together like survey the whole offering and we'll be spiritual gluttons. We'll eat it all. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Um, I also want to say that I'm here because of Alan Watts. Oh, Alan Watts. Yeah, like he's the kind of guy that I like to to talk one day. But I mean, he he was more like not too spiritual in the technical way, but uh, he has helped me to understand a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah, he really speaks to the mind. I mean, the yeah. book, you know, Alan Watts' The Book, he, he says oh, yeah. he's going off of Vedanta. Yeah, that's the, that, that book. That's really good. That What you read there is a lot of the stuff that you will hear here. So he's yeah. studying Vedanta. Yeah. He calls that Vedanta, but actually it's Tantra. What he's talking about, about like God playing a game with herself, like God fakes it so well that she forgets that she's God. Like that's yeah. more Tantra, more Kashmir Shaivism than it is Vedanta. So that this book is a great, the book is a great introduction to all the stuff that we talk about here. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very familiar with all you talk about, not with the terms specific, but the 
how did you connect them to right. each other? It's the same tradition, you know, because that was the 60s. That was like back when, you know, the people like Ram Das, Alan Watts, and all those people were getting very interested in Eastern spirituality. So a lot of people mm-hmm. here, I, 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 I can guess, came through Ram Das, came through Krishna Das, came through, you know, it's so funny. We have a Hanuman's birthday. And suddenly the temple was full that day. And there were people like LA people who could sing the whole Hanuman Chalisa in Hindi. I don't know how to sing that. I don't speak Hindi, but these people flawlessly sing the whole thing. And I'm like, what? And they're just like all the most like LA people you could ever imagine. And here they are flawless Hindi. And I realized, oh, because of Krishna Das, because that, you know, there's that Ram Das, Krishna Das thing. So they learned the Chalisa by heart and it's wonderful. So I'm familiar with Mr. Watts' work, and I think it's very wonderful, very nice. Yeah, like the, the I, I mean, so far, I mean, you, you're the closest person alive to him. That's why I came here. <laughs> no, 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 that's not true. If anything, uh, only because you hear in this what is not there in me, but there in the tradition. You know, so this tradition is bigger yeah. than any of the people who talk about. I it. mean, that's, it 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 spreads, right? Uh, yeah, that, that I have it very clear because I know that some physics that uh, made the the nuclear bomb, uh, Oppenheimer. Do you know him? He talks about the Gita, uh, right? He, he recites the he Gita. He says, "I'm I'm Shiva. I'm the destroyer of the worlds." Yes, he, like, he recites dude, the Gita. Like, this, this, this sounds like a conspiracy to me, and that's why I'm I'm so I'm so interested in buddhism like it sounds like a conspiracy like <laughs> he bore bore like a chemist he said like every time like he, he was like a the Nobel prize right yes uh, it sounds like legends to me that they're fake but i think they're true people are can just uh get it yeah Right? He says, I go to the Upanishads. I, I go to the Upanishads. Go yeah. to the Upanishads, yes. Yeah. That looks crazy. You know, it's so funny because everything that there is to know has already been said in the Upanishads. And great quantum mechanics understand yeah. that. See, Kat has said about CERN in Switzerland, like in Geneva, they have that big Nataraja outside of CERN. Yeah. Um, you might like and the Tao. What, what, I mean, what I mean with this is that a scientist like science reached a point where they came to the same conclusion as Buddhism. Right. And that's that's amazing. And even that in the Vedas, it says one truth, many expressions. Ekamsat vipra bahuda vadanti. There's one truth, so many ways to get to it. Yeah. That's why, yeah. like, all the religions I I work. I think I got it because of that. Yeah. And that's like my kind of meditation, but. I don't know how to make it systematically so I don't bore myself and get in this old lifestyle. That's why you're here. Yeah. Yes. You know, they were talking about Alan Watts and it's important to remember. So a lot of people sometimes come here and they're like, oh, that's Alan Watts. I'm like, yes. I mean, what a powerful teacher. He brought that. But remember, this message is bigger than the men and women and people who, who share it. Like there's no room here for personalities. That's the thing. You know, it's like, Sometimes we hear people, and this is not to you, Bernal, but just to general public. It's like, sometimes people hear me say this stuff and they're like, oh, Nish said it. That's Nish's teaching. You know, it's like, oh, wow. And because it's the first time they've heard it. And if they hear it from Alan Watts, they're like, oh, it's Alan, you know? And then you, you come here and you're like, wait, it, this sounds like Alan. Or some people will go to Alan Watts and be like this, because this is a tradition. This is a 5,000 year old tradition that speaks for itself. The ideas speak for itself, you know? So I'm happy that we can all meet together in a space like this. 
and just and, and what do you think sorry and what do you think about Zen Buddhism? Oh, I love it. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I'm very caught on that at the moment. Like uh, I'm reading Shobogenso from Dogen. Yeah, good. You know him? Yes, I'm familiar. Not so much. It's outside of my tradition, but I, I love that it's, stuff. It's, it's uh, pure genius poetry. Like, yes. I mean, I mean, because of Alan, I, I didn't stay with Alan. I, I he drew me to different different possibilities and he convinced me on Zen Buddhism like it's it's I don't know my kind of thing like no symbolism but I, I think I'm missing the meditation yeah yeah it's predominantly meditation path but you're right it's so austere so clean so pure yeah. follow it yeah you are yeah, doing a hell out of it I, I love to do it yes wonderful beautiful Bernal. thank you for sharing no pleasure to meet you all right thank you Bernal. dear brother richard is here richard g please we'll take two more and then we'll call yes richard. take anish roxanne anisha and then we'll call it a night. yes brother richard uh i was um watching a free will uh video yes on the new york uh, channel right uh, on my way home the other day to meet a friend that i haven't seen in months and uh, when we met, he was also listening to a free will podcast. Right. So I thought it was a funny coincidence. Um, but I w wanted to think, uh, I wanted to ask you, like, what has been your experience of surrendering, your, surrendering yourself to the will of God and like being happy with the way that things turned out or mm. are turning out? Um, if you could speak on what your experience has been. Beautiful question. Beautiful question. It comes through meditation when we're sitting there and really abiding in, in one's own self sitting, we get the taste of awareness, you know, the taste of awareness being aware of itself. Some, somehow a sweetness arises and then we could say we feel the living presence of God. So that's always the beginning. It's hard to surrender yourself to a God that you don't feel, that you don't know exists, that only exists in terms of concepts. So I could never, quote unquote, surrender to the will of God until I felt the living presence of that God. And that took a while for me. Although I was raised in this tradition and, and I had only started practicing seriously when I was 16. Seriously. Before that, I wasn't. And then I would fall in and out and all that. Um, but up till that point, I don't think I could have said I've surrendered to God. And from 16 to 23, I don't think I would ever have been comfortable saying that because it wasn't yet real for me. You know, God wasn't yet an actual living presence that I could commune with. It was a concept. And the idea of surrendering to that felt nice, but inauthentic. So that period of my life was the self-effort phase of my spirituality. I, I rather believe in myself than believe in a God because myself, I know about that. I know Nish and that Nish is here. What Nish is, I don't know. Who Nish is, I don't know. But that he is here, I know. You know, I, I, my existence is self-evident to me and I trust that I trust in my own strength. And so my faith was a faith in my own ability to do stuff. So I wanted to do asana every day. I wanted to meditate. I wanted to find my guru and uh, my guru had passed away when I was 20, 20, in the beginning of March, 2020, but to, to find more instruction, like all of that felt like self-effort, you know? So it wasn't surrendering to God. It was doing what I thought needed to be done to achieve meaning in my life. You know, so that meant meditating a lot, 
And in that meditation, there emerged finally that feeling of, oh, wow, it's a living presence. And it came with a recognition of its presence all throughout my life. So I was like, I survived that because of God. I came to this because of God. Like basically it redefined everything retrospectively for me. I could look back at my entire life, right? Most of you resonate with this as Anisha as I can see. It's like, oh, you were there, my, every step of the way. Somehow or other, as, as even Bernal was saying, it's eerie. It sounds like a conspiracy theory almost when you see how perfectly synchronized and calibrated it all was. You know, so in hindsight, everything was, I saw clearly the play and will of God. But even now, there's a sense of if I eat food, and this was kind of the realization for me in a moment, like I am not digesting my food. You know, my body is digesting food for me. I, I don't control the digestion process at all. I can't secrete acid in my life depend on it. My stomach knows to do that. My blood knows to circulate it. Somehow this body is bodying and it has nothing to do with me. And more importantly, breath is breathing and it has nothing to do with me. I'm not breathing. I am being breathed. So there emerged, Richard, in my life, this sense of I'm not living my life. Life is living me. There are urges and instincts and impulses that come from nowhere, seemingly. And if I listen to them, my life flourishes. And it's almost like life takes care of life. When I needed some money for something, it came somehow. I don't know why. And when I wanted something and it wasn't in the cards for me to have it, it was easy for me then to go, well, then I'm not supposed to have it because everything has happened through the grace of that one, whatever that one is. So if I get something, that's wonderful. I meant to have it. If I don't, I can accept it because I know that everything that's happened in my life thus far has been good. So why not this? Everything that I thought was bad ultimately turned out to be good. So why couldn't this be good too? So the feeling of surrendering to God happened in three ways. One, it came first in a belief in myself, which helped me pursue spiritual practice. Then came that living presence of God encountered in meditation, the feeling of awareness being aware of itself. Then came the insight that this awareness is emanating forth a world into existence. It was a living awareness, not like a no thing that didn't do anything. It was a no thing that was full of activity and life expressing itself in terms of art. And then all the doctrines I learned growing up made sense. Maybe that was a cultural bias, given that I had learned about Kashmir Shaivism through my grandfather. I'd learned all this like Shiva's Leela, like Shiva emanates this world for art, Shiva Shakti or whatever. Maybe it was a cultural bias, but all that stuff became real and true for me. I was like, oh my God, they were right. It feels that way now. All of this is Shakti. And now when I look at a book that the color red or yellow or something, it's like oh, Shakti. It's almost like a feeling of I'm not alone. Around me is awareness, pure awareness, pulsing and oscillating and throbbing. And it appears as an Anisha, as a Roxanne, as a Richard. And everywhere you look, it's God, 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 God. Now, surrendering is not a choice. It's a fact. I don't have to surrender to God. I'm already surrendered to God. For only God is. There's no room for Nish. So where Nish exists, and I still have that sense of I, I am a Nish. I feel myself to be that. But I feel myself to be Nish the servant and devotee of God, whose only delight is in singing her praises. You know, when did that surrender happen? I don't know, but it didn't happen because it's always been the case, you know? Thank you. Yes. So is your question now, Richard, how can I surrender to God? Absolutely, because I've, been thinking about how nature takes care of nature and how 
I'm trying to discern like, is this really nature or am I trying to create something that's not in alignment with the will of God? Um, yes. So that's something I've been working towards. Yes. I mean, one way to think about it in Shaivism is that there's nothing that's outside the will of God. If, if you disobeyed God, it was the will of God that you disobeyed God. You know what I mean? There's no dualism. All is just Shiva. So if Richard wants to like just satisfy his sense appetites and just like make money on Wall Street and just like, I don't know, you know, dare I say it, commit crimes or whatever. Ultimately, the Shaivite has to say that's Shiva's play. Shiva playing as Richard wants to do all of that. So it was Shiva's will to leave spiritual life. And when does Richard come back to spiritual life? When Shiva has had enough of suffering in the world. He wanted that. And even suffering is nice. You know, in Shaivism, the, the life-affirming idea is I want to suffer. I love it. I crave it. In fact, if I didn't want to suffer, the moment I decided to stop suffering, I could. I would. Because Shiva, it's only Shiva after all. So when Richard is done with that life, then there will emerge in you an urge to come to spiritual life. When you come to spiritual life, it's Shiva playing a game as a spiritual seeker. Then when you want to become enlightened, no sooner and no later, you will be. So in one sense, Richard, you can never leave the will of God because only the will of God is functional in this world, in whatever expression. Yes. How's that? Thank you. That was beautiful. Beautiful. It's Kashmiri Shaivism. Beautiful idea. I love it so much. All right. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much. Here's Roxanne. Dear Roxanne G. I hope you'll be back Tuesday. I missed you. Good. Welcome back from the trip. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Hi. So nice to be here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Loud and clear. Okay. So wait, I'm just going to, um, I type my question. So I'm just going to. Okay, awareness becoming aware of itself. How does that differ from the subject being the object? Yes, great question. And again, this is a matter, matter of process. So remember the donkey? The donkey was tied to the tree by an illusory rope, but it wouldn't move until we go through the motions of untying the rope. So think of it this way. There is a movie and there's not actually a movie. It's just light, but it appears to be a movie. Similarly, there appears to be now subject-object duality. There appears to be. The appearance is duality. That's an undoubtable fact of my experience. There are many things, and I am different from those things. So in spiritual life, there must be three stages. Stage one is to negate the object in favor of the subject. Because if we don't, we will overly identify with the body and mind. You know, so the first phase of life is living life as a body-mind complex, as a personality. That game is fun for a few lives. Now, when we awaken to spiritual life, we're playing a new game. And the first act you could think of this, of this play is to disambiguate the subject from the object. So at this state, it's called Sankhya and no spirituality can begin without it. And this stage is where you say, I am the subject. I am not the object. So you must first and foremost have a deep conviction that you are not the body and you are not the mind. All spiritual traditions in the world, this is the preliminary practice and a majority of the practice will be this because it's hard to win this battle, this victory, to see yourself as a subject, a pure soul, a spirit, then to do that requires a rejection of the object provisionally. You know, this is Sankhya. It's the first step. It's not the end of spiritual life. There's more. But the first step is to reject the object, to see the subject-object dichotomy, 
and to now favor the subject as opposed to the object. That's Sankhya. Once you're done with that, the next step is to realize there are no objects apart from the subject, meaning there is just the subject. You know, all the objects that you see are the subject. So only the subject exists. And, you know, in this phase of spiritual life, there is still some object denial. You don't want to grant the name in a form of a thing because you're still young. You're still new at it. It takes you away from the subject. The ultimate stage of spiritual maturity is to see the Blue Yeti microphone and see God. In the beginning, I only saw the Blue Yeti microphone. I can't see God until I take the Blue Yeti microphone off. And if I put it back, I lose God. But maybe if I'm so with her, then I put the Blue Yeti microphone on and she's still there. Then uh, now you could say the subject and the object, both of them are gone. All that's left is the relationship, pure experiencing. And you're left with this wonderful phrase, Anubhavam Matram Brahma. Experiencing alone is Brahma. Not the subject, not the object, but the dissolving of both subject and object into experiencing. That alone is Brahma. That is attainment. At that point, there's no conversation about subject, object anymore. It just is. Right. That was a great explanation. Um, so my other question is like, just, I, I guess this has probably been something that we've talked about in other talks and stuff, but maybe this is too much to get into. So I'll just put it out there. You don't even have to answer it tonight to <laughs> another time. But you, but when you talk, like you very easily um, say, well, not this slide, the next slide. How do you know that? I mean, uh, how, 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 how do we know how to, like, I am not somebody who comes necessarily believing in another life, you know? Then so, don't. Yeah. Then don't. It, it, it doesn't really I just wonder how we know that. Oh, you know, have you ever had those moments in your life where you know something, but you can't articulate why you know it? Like a gut feeling? Yeah, probably. Usually it's around <laughs> children or lovers. You just know uh -huh. something, you know, but... Mm -hmm. How do you know that they were thinking that you would never be able to? Mm -hmm. I, know. Mm -hmm. I know it right. like that. I know it though. I know it. I don't just believe it. I know it. And not only that, I know it like I know that I was a child. I have memories of that. Similarly, mm -hmm. I have memories. And you know when a memory is a memory, right? You like just know that this is not a, a hallucination. It's not a fantasy. It's different from last night's dream. It's a memory. Although I know in previous lectures, I've said memories are very dreamlike. That's true. Ultimately, there's no reincarnation because ultimately there's nothing but God um, in Advaita Vedanta. So you, in a sense, you're right. There's no reincarnation. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? Um, this is a very subtle field. And you're right to point it out because, uh, point out that it's a really big question because as Anisha beautifully said, there's actually another voice that's also subliminal, but it lies. And that is uh, deep subconscious complexes fierce and uh, one day i will give you both of you the big picture of like paravak uh pashantivak madhyamavak vaikarivak i'll show you the metaphysics as to how to disambiguate that fear that irrational fear from the deep gut feeling but for now i'll just give you this when there is a gut feeling and you just know something but you don't know why you know it if you try to like push it or press it you'll only get silence in response so for instance, say you're in a relationship and you feel like you need to leave that relationship and that feeling just comes, you know, you have to leave it and you say, but why? But it won't argue with you. It won't talk to you. That feeling is silent. 
Whereas if it's an irrational fear, it will talk on and on and on and justify itself. It will say you should you should stay in this relationship, you should leave this relationship because there's so many fish in the sea. It'll be noisy. It's very noisy. An irrational fear, although it's coming from beyond the mind, just like an intuition, is noisy and frantic. Whereas an intuition is quiet, deep, and abiding. They have a different texture. And we can only know that from a lot of meditating. So as we practice meditation, we know that, oh, an experience of God is different from a dream, is different from a hallucination. We know that there are different kinds of dreams, dreams that feel more real than others. And we know that there are memories and some memories feel more real than others. So the reason I speak with confidence about a past life and future lives is because I know it on an intellectual level. I'm completely convinced. I know it on a deep intuitional level. And I also have memories. And also, more importantly, um, it doesn't matter. You know, like ultimately, at the end of the day, it's better to pretend like this is your only life in some cases. Because in some cases, Tony especially, I'm looking at Tony here. Um, where is he still here? Uh, it's good to say, oh, this is your only life. Because otherwise, you'll just get lazy. You'll be like, oh, I'll just wait. Tony keeps saying this to me. He's like, ah, next life, next life. No, Tony. No, this life. <laughs> so in some cases, it's good to stress urgency, which is you don't have all day. Next life, even if you believe in next life, it might suck. You might not have a healthy body. That, that part of the lesson and spoke to me tonight and yes. it kind of instilled a little bit of fear it's like it doesn't get any cushier than this right. you might not have this time in your next uh incarnation so start doing it and then the other thing you said about like even if it's like mindless uh like if you're just going through the motions it still builds up for the next life and i was like <laughs> oh no i'm screwed in two ways but yeah it, it spoke to me tonight's lesson definitely spoke to me I'm so happy, Tony. I'm so happy. I knew it would. I had a feeling that this is the one which is like, yes, this is really good. I keep telling myself, Nish, if you can't do it here, you'll, where else? You know, your body's taken care of, you're a nice form, you got a beautiful sangha, you got a great guru who is God himself. I met God. What's my fault? What's my problem now? You know, <laughs> there's no life that could be better than this. And that's a good attitude to feel like if I can't do it now, I can't do it ever. So I better do it now. Or it might never be as good as this. Or there's no other time. YOLO. This is my only time. So I better. So these are good attitudes, actually. For many people, reincarnation is a hindrance. It'll just put things off for tomorrow that should have been done today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Do it this life. So for most people, I think reincarnation is a hindrance. And we ought not talk about it because might as well just focus on what we know and what's here now. However, for some people, it's helpful. Helpful to know that this body, this mind, this incarnation is but one room in the mansion of my spirit. That's a wonderful thought, a feeling of like, I am vaster than just this. And when this incarnation goes, no worries. In fact, that teaching was given to Arjuna, who was worried that he would lose what he gained from learning yoga. He said to Krishna, I'm, I'm going to war and I might die soon. What good would any of this do me? And Krishna says, relax. Even a little bit of this practice will dispel great fear. He says something like to the effect of you're putting it in the bank for later. If you do die before you attain yoga, because Arjuna says, what if I die before I get, I get it. And Krishna smiles and just says, chill. If you die before you get it, you'll just pick up from where you left off in the next birth, which I think is a tremendously important teaching. You know, like this wonderful feeling of, I remember I was in Vietnam. It's a really rainy town, Dalai, Dalat, Dalat, the rainiest town in the world. I think it was raining all the time there. And I was on a porch with the Bhagavad Gita and the whole, it's just a beautiful moment of reading the Gita. And it occurred to me, and this insight was, this is but one room in the mansion of my spirit. 
And this feeling of, oh, well, if I die and I've achieved nothing, none of this is lost. None of this studying, none of this practice is lost. It all carries over. And for some reason, that inspired me more than anything to practice twice as hard. It was like, I was like, oh, I have a bank. I might as well save. So for me, that teaching was important. And for others, maybe the reincarnation thing is a hindrance. You're right. And Bernal said it best. These are just symbols. On an absolute level, there's no movie. It's just light. But in the movie, as long as there's a Nish and a Roxanne, reincarnation is a thing. It's true. It's real. And I know it. So that's why I talk about it. But if it's not true for you, then why accept it as true on faith? Toss it out. Who needs it? <laughs> yes. But maybe you can take it on faith. I don't know. Like Maybe I could just look you in the eyes and say, Roxanne, you will continue when the body ends. Reincarnation is real. Maybe that's enough. Some people, if you're going to take it on faith, I don't mind if you do or you don't. Whether you believe in gravity or not, you're going to fall when you fall down the stairs. It's got nothing to do with me. I don't gain anything from you understanding about gravity. It's up to, you know, so that's the thing. It's like, whether we know it or not, this is just the way nature is. Um, that's why I speak about it. All right. I hope that is nice. Thank you, Roxanne. Beautiful question. And also, I thought I should add about awareness being aware of itself. You're right. That's a duality. And we can call it param advaya, meaning higher non-duality. The idea that if there was non-duality, why take the trouble to create the illusion of duality? And the idea is because it's fun. So awareness most delights in being aware of itself. And the only way it can do that is to objectify itself, which gives you the entire the theology of creation. This whole creation is here to objectify subjectivity so that it could worship itself. Enjoy. Worship is the purpose of life and you can't worship without two. So one becomes two for love. Yes. <laughs> so nice. Thank you, dear Roxanne. Thank you. Hey. Parking. Oh. <laughs> oh, good, good. So yes, dear Anisha in the Nepali sun. There you are. Yes, dear. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. My audio has been super weird lately, so, but here we are. Hi. Um, <laughs> um, this question might be a slightly off topic, so I apologize for that. But um, so it, it, first of all, just crazy about how the lectures have been so completely on topic with things I've been thinking about and experiencing in life um, with last week's Jyotish introduction. I've actually, I've been um, been studying kind of a lot about Vedic astrology and hanging out with this really amazing um, Jyotish clairvoyant master. Um, and he had told me that my pro I suppose Ishta Devata is Shiva, um, which I, is unsurprising. But I was like, I, you might know, and for everyone else, I've been worshiping Burgama for so for like <laughs> my whole life. Um, always felt called to her, and so to hear that was like fine at first. I was like, okay, yeah, cool, and he was like. Oh, same family, same family. When I was like, oh, actually, I've been worshiping Durga. Like, he's like, that's good. And I'm glad you have a good relationship with her. But Shiva is like that bitch, basically. 
So, um, <laughs> so I was, I was like, okay. And so I included, or I've been trying to include more, I guess, Shiva, Sadhana into my day-to-day life, but it just doesn't, it's not as fun as worshiping Durga, Durga Ma. I don't know if that's just because I have more like experience with her or what, but like when I worship her, I like, it's like, oh, like, you know, but then with Shiva, it's, it's can be nice too, but it's, I don't get that feeling with it. Yeah, good. I'm I glad it's relatable. Just everyone, but Anisha, stick with the mother. You know, I wouldn't say this okay. to anybody, but I'm like, no, no, no. Don't worry about any of that. The thing you have to know above all is that Shiva is worshipped through his Shakti. And the most important thing is it's not Shiva Shakti. It's not same family even. That's not true. It's the same person. Like Shiva is formless awareness. And his form is Shakti. They're not different. Don't think of Durga as a god and Shiva as a god and they're two different aspects. No, to worship Durga is to worship Shiva. And in fact, the only way to worship Shiva is to worship Durga. I'm just telling you that as your like, as your brother. I wouldn't tell this to most people. Like a lot of people, I think this would be, you know, inappropriate for most people. But for you, you're in the Kula, you know, you're part of the family. And I have to tell you that there are different attitudes in Shaivism. But the Siddhanta school, which is the main kind of orthodox school of Shaivism, worships Shiva without his Shakti. There's no like goddess worship or Shakti worship. But the development of Shaivism in Krama school Shaivism, which is what we study here, uh, it's almost entirely goddess-oriented. But they don't consider themselves Shaktas. They're still Shaivas, uh, though today we call them Shaktas. So today we say, oh, Krama, they're Shaktas. They worship Shakti. No, no, no. We're Shaivas. We worship Shiva. It's just our mystic insight has revealed to us that the fire is appreciated for its heat. Shiva is enjoyed for a Shakti. After all, if you are Shiva, you're here to make love to your wife, not to yourself. So come and love Shakti, you know? And yes, Shakti is you, so ultimately you are masturbating, but with the provision of duality. So um, worship Ma. You know, today in this era, the worship of the mother is the correct attitude. As Ramakrishna would often say, uh, I approach God, and he often says, he, I approach him as mother. Isn't that beautiful? I approach him as mother. So mystically, it makes more sense. It, it's more philosophically and mystically viable to relate to Durgama or Kalima or Parvadima in the guise of Shiva. You're still worshipping Shiva. But stick to it. Stick to your Durga Bhakti. Great answer. Perfect. Glad to hear it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Good stuff. Thank you. And also you're wearing red. What more is left in this discussion? <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Wow. That's been it's been crazy, the semantics of it. Yeah. I guess it doesn't really matter um anyway, but <laughs> yes. Don't get caught yeah. in the name. For you, I can say this. Some people still need to learn the semantics, but for you, remember Shiva just means blessing. You know, yeah. someone, I think it was Kat who said about love, God is love. God is not loving. God is love. Or God is not auspicious. God is auspiciousness. So whatever that's blessed in your life, that's Shiva, you know. There is nothing that's not Shiva. That's why we say, Itti Shivam, all of this is Shiva. 
Durga is a strong manifestation of Shiva. Everything is Shiva, but Durga is the strongest manifestation of Shiva. Durga, Kali, Mother. So it's only appropriate that if you're looking for Shiva, go to Kali. You know, go to Mother's feet. She'll show you everything about Shiva. And I'm speaking to you now, like many of you in the room, this won't apply, but just the correct worship in this age um, is worshiping God as a mother. So I, this is to the bhaktas in the room. That, that is the most fruitful worship in the Kali Yuga. You know, the God of Tantra, Kali. She is the patron deity of Tantra because she is Shiva. You know, so go to the mother. You know, all, and, and remember who your mother is. She's Kali. What do we have to fear? Thank you. Beautiful. Jai Ma. Jai Ambe. Jai Ma Durga. <laughs> Jai Ma Durga. Good night, dear Roxanne. All right, let's call it a night. Um, Teresa, do you have something? I'll quickly answer Teresa and then we'll call it a night. It'll be like a two-minute answer. Though. So if you need more, Teresa, next week we'll, we'll look at it. So let's see if we can do it. Yes, Teresa, go for it. Um, yeah. It was just regarding one of your videos about memories and you were talking about letting them go. And I was just curious, like, I know we're not the mind, the body. And, but if, I mean, just through meditation, you kind of let that go. But like, what about things that kind of keep resurfacing and you, I mean, you're done with it you want it to not resurface. It kind of like takes energy focus. Yeah. And I'm just curious here. Yes. It's nice to hear voice. Think of it this way. Like say something comes up and if you pay attention to it, you energize it with the power of your attention. In a Sanskrit phrase, pragunikir. I love that word. Pragunikir means to nourish. We nourish things by paying attention to it. So you might say, okay, I'm done with that thought. But when it resurfaces, we're not done yet because we're still paying attention to it. And importantly, we believe it. So say a memory comes, we believe it. We believe the memory. We take it seriously. We think it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So that will keep resurfacing because we've, we've watered the plot. It's going to keep flowering. You know, as long as we focus on it, the more we give attention to it, the more it will come. You can't just decide I'm done with that. You know, you're right. I, in that video, I said, just drop it. You're right. That in some sense, you can. You can just be like, oh, none of these things actually happened. My point of that video was to point out that dreams and TV shows don't feel that different from memories. You know, I don't believe the TV show happened, so I can forget about it. Not all the time, though. Sometimes, like, the scenes of the movie keep coming up. <laughs> or dreams. Like, sometimes we don't forget dreams so easily. So you're right. This is more complex than I made it seem. You can't just decide to drop it and expect it to drop. Ultimately, you can. Relatively, no, it won't work that way. The mind is very tenacious. If you've thought about something a lot, that thing will keep resurfacing. More importantly, if it's been charged with emotional power, oh man, that thing will just show up over and over and over again, like the sense of I. So the answer then, Teresa, is to redirect your attention. You must keep your attention firmly fixed on that which is enlivening, beautiful, and positive. And in the beginning, those thoughts will keep coming up. No worries. They'll all, of course, they'll do that. Lust, greed, memories of things that happened, things that we wanted to happen that didn't happen. All of that will come. And you don't have to worry about getting rid of them or dropping them or stopping them. Just increase your spiritual practice, increase your meditation, increase your prayer. You know, you're here all the time on Mondays, which is good. Keep talking about spirituality. And slowly, 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 your focus will move away from that memory 
and instead glom on to spirituality. And then that memory will lose steam and you won't even think about it anymore. Maybe every now and then. Think of it this way. I have two hands. This is my hand of worldliness. This is my hand of God. For most of the day, I'm doing this. I'm using my hand of worldliness, you know, and it gets so strong. Like those people who only masturbate with one hand. They have one really strong hand. So let's say I have one really strong hand and every now and then I pick up my flimsy God hand. Every now and then. It's mostly atrophy, but every now and then I like pick it up and shake it a bit and put it back down. But most of the time I'm using this hand. So this is going to be the strong hand and this is going to be my dominant hand. However, if I start to use this hand more and I stop using this one, this will atrophy away. Mm-hmm. And this will be my dominant hand. That should be like... You know why? Yes? You know why I... I purposely give it focus sometimes, even though I want to let it go because I think, oh, is there what's lesson here? Because I feel like I'm supposed to extract something and then it'll dissipate, but it seems to go on. So yes, I'm giving it focus, but I thought it was purple with intention to, you know, take the lesson. That's what I always think about things like that. Like, why is this surfacing? You know, maybe, maybe. That's but I see how point. I inadvertently then do give it attention. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, like I, on, mm-hmm. on one level, you're right, because you could say even from a Shaivistic point of view, Shiva wants to experience something. And until the thing is fully experienced, it'll keep coming up. So in that sense, attention right. is the way to dissolve exactly. it. You know, if you could really focus on it. And by, by this, I mean, try to like look past the conceptual quality of the thought to the underlying vibration, like the vibe of the memory. Try to focus Mm -hmm. on that. Meditate on the feeling state. So the next time that memory comes back, instead of engaging in this thought world of, I need to analyze what the lesson was. Like you're thinking of the lesson in terms of something linguistic. Drop that. There's no lesson that your mind needs to learn. Because you're right. The mind just goes on and on and on. It's not the mind. It's something deeper. So when the memory comes, don't push it away. Just feel it on a vibrational level. So sit there with it. Meditate on the memory as a vibe. And then you will flood it with your attention and devour it. You know, so sh- the, the Shaivistic way is to just be so present with everything. When it arises, yeah. be so present with it that it dissolves in your attention. Okay, that, that feels right. Mm-hmm. Yes, so that's okay. strategy number one. Strategy number two is the Raja Yoga strategy, which is focus your attention on something else and then that thing will atrophy. So my first response was a more like Yoga Sutra response. Like if you feel pain, mm-hmm. One way is to just focus on something. There's only a limited bandwidth anyway. So if you keep your mind fixed on one thing, the pain will go away. Like when you have a toothache and you're just so focused on like doing your work, you don't feel the toothache until you get home and you're idle again mm-hmm. and you feel it. It's not that it wasn't there. It's just that your bandwidth had been restricted. You didn't have the bandwidth for it. So the yogi avoids pain and discomfort and constriction by focusing. And the tantrika does too. It's just that the tantrika focuses on the thing where the yogi focuses away from the thing towards some other thing. The tantrika makes the thing itself a meditation. So those are two methods and they both work. So sometimes you might just want to focus on God and atrophy away that memory. It might not be serving you. And other times, if you're strong enough to do it, if you can just sit there and experience it fully, that might be a more direct and effective way to get not the lesson, but the juice of it. Maybe what you want is to savor something. And your instinct is, no, I should, there's something in this memory for me. What is it? It's not the memory. It's the vibe. Eat the energy Mm -hmm. of it. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. Amal will like this. He's in the Vignana Bhairava class. 
And it's all about that. Like, oh, a tantrika is not interested in peace. A tantrika wants ecstasy. And the way to get ecstasy is not by letting shit go. It's by eating it. Why do I want to let it go? It's all free energy. It's like saying, I have all this food in my house. I'm just going to give it away. No, my last oh, free energy. I'm not going to go out and like act on it because I would waste it. I want to eat it. In other words, I want to add it to my energy body. It enlivens me. So if I feel grief, free energy, baby, I eat it all up. That's what the Tantrika wants. We want to be mad like Bhairava, full of ecstasy. Leave peace to the yogis in the caves. I'm a householder Tantrika. I'm here in this world to eat and stick my tongue out and dance and like, ah. You know? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Wonderful, friends. So let's call that a night. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming, for tuning in wherever in the world you are. And always nice to see my sister Anisha in Nepal. It's nice that you're back and can be here, time zones permitting. It's always a joy to talk to you all and to meet new friends like Kat. So nice that you found us, Kat. So nice to see Amal. You know, you can learn a lot from just looking at Amal's screen. The way Amal sits, it's a teaching, you know. So when you're hearing Anna teach, oh, it's a teaching. You see Amal sit, just like when you hear, you know, anybody like speak here, it's a teaching. It's very nice, you know, very nice. And I'm so blessed to be among such profound teachers. Thank you for teaching me and being here with me and sharing this time. May you all have a beautiful and restful night ahead, meditating or sleeping or anything. Thank you for all your participation and love. Let's chant and go to bed. <laughs> Om Namah Shivaya Nikela Bhuvana Janma Snema Banga Prarohaha Akalita Mahimana Kalpita Yatra Tasmin Suvimala Gaganabhe Isha Samstepyanishe Mama Bhavantu Bhavesmin Basuro Bhava Bandaha Mama Bhavatu Bhavesmin Basuro Bhava Bandaha Om Shanti 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 Arihyom Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Arpanamastu Oh, may my luminous love fasten firm to him, to Shiva, in whom arises visions of glories immeasurable. May my luminous love cling to him, who is utterly pure like the sky, who is Lord over all, having no Lord over himself. Oh, peace, peace, peace. May this be an offering to my Guru Sri Ramakrishna.